Half time, the first, the first sentence that I said, like, if you have fear of failure, you will not succeed. You must have the guts to fail to succeed. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. OTB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now. Seven on this Wednesday morning, oh, I want to say. Welcome along to OTBAM, the Off the Ball Breakfast Show, live every single morning, as per usual, from half past seven. Adrian Barry with me this morning. Adrian, very good morning. Good morning to you, Shane, Kathleen, Colm. Colm, good morning. Hi, Shane. How are you? Kathy, good morning. Good morning. It's like the Brady Bunch, you know, the start of the Brady Bunch, where they're looking up and down at, the, at each other on the screen at the start of the. Yeah. So we just this is the Arctic Monkeys kind of that my time. wanted to hear on Friday night. This is the Arctic Monkeys that people wanted to hear. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All I was getting on my Twitter was the much maligned Alex Turner now. So the, the Glastonbury performance didn't go... No, I think they play a lot of their new stuff and he's kind of a bit of a crooner now, isn't he? I, I think it depends on who you follow as well. Like, I saw other people being like it was the best thing they ever saw and like it was absolutely majestic and it was a moment of pure magic on a weekend of Glastonbury. Um, I heard the first encore song and there wasn't much to get you going like you'd be, you'd be exiting pretty quickly didn't play any of the classics wasn't it a thing that he was singing slightly off pace to how most of the classics are normally sung so it was really hard for the crowd to actually yeah. sing along with them He's, he would be a contrarian like that yeah. well it was playing in the house anyway uh, in Home and Cork and Bill Bowie's like what's that it's never good if Bill Bowie's what's that not even like what's that racket yeah. was that the, was that the ba- it was back in the ghetto blaster days in the but 90s that, he, that wasn't a commentary the on, the, on the quality of that particular gig I would imagine as opposed to that general oh, it was like, what genre kind of, what kind of song uh, is this to play he was th- saying I'm not going to lie to you and I'm going to piss off my mother by saying this but uh, I, I feel the same about Elton John you think Rocket Man etc I'd, I'd be an Elton John fan I really that's just curmudgeonly now Shane that's I don't appreciate Elton John that's just really cranky. I think he's a brilliant artist and I understand the, the draw of him but I've seen the, I've seen videos of him you know the behind the scenes yeah. videos where he's a bit of a yeah. asshole to some of his did you uh, see the film no I haven't seen the film very good now that would change your opinion I think possibly yeah. and sure aren't they all on some level like well there's egos going around there I suppose and in fairness to Elton John, he's lucky he's a top artist. So we won't get into Elton John critiques. The top, top artist. Elton John is a top artist. Exactly what our YouTube commenters are coming for. Yeah. At, that mo- at that moment. Well, I wanted to talk about Tato Meanies on the show this morning, but I'm, I'm, I'm presuming I'm not going to be allowed to. Um, they've changed my life this morning. Uh, I feel like I have to try them after we had a big discussion in the office yesterday and Phil was so like, oh, I don't know, the texture isn't good. And then I went up to the fifth floor to get an orange juice because sadly they no longer come down to our floor. Yeah. And I found Colin Buhig and Phil both with three packets of potatoes in each hand. Six between the th- two of them because they were so good. So this isn't a paid, paid uh, endorsement. This is a public service announcement more so than anything else. Um, so Meanies. Greedy. Meanies in a, in a potato <laughs> texture. Mm. Three is Greedy the maximum. That's a lot. Three is the maximum. Was you this yesterday, Cassie? Uh, no, it was this morning. Sorry, this morning. Yeah. Yeah. Three is the maximum you could take of anything free. Yeah, oh, that's that's fair. Yeah. I only talk to two myself because I'm. Or one, modest. of course, and then allow, you know, for other people. Oh, I actually, to I gave a pack to Adam outside there. Oh, oh, fair. Very generous. Ah, you were very. I saw you do that, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was like those people that, that film nice things, you know, and, and they do it. <laughs> nice. It's like, it's good everyone, look, good at PR. Me, look at me doing this nice good thing. Good PR. It's going around, though. Yeah, good PR. Um. So the Republic of Ireland women's squad for the World Cup is going to be named, we expect, 11am, just before 11am this morning. Vera Powell was certainly supposed to speak at 11. Um, and there was a report in the Irish Examiner late yesterday evening from John Fallon uh, with 
what do we call it, the leaked squad or certainly yeah. the, Emma the squad? Emma Duffy in the 42 is also reporting the same stuff, so okay. it seems pretty legit. So, Kathleen, what are we thinking here? Uh, judging by this squad, Aoife Mannion and Megan Campbell won't be among the 23 players at the World Cup. Leanne Kiernan also will not be involved. Jimmy Finn on the standby list, it appears. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sierra Chanoon also overlooked uh, in, in favour you would expect uh, for Abby Larkin the home base player of course how do we feel about this? Uh, when I initially saw it last night I was a bit like I felt like I'd been kicked I was like oh no this is terrible just particularly Aoife Mannion and Megan Campbell both not being fit enough to travel or even beyond the plus three player list was quite a blow I think over the last couple of weeks <clears throat> Vera Powell and like the FAI in general have kept a very tight hash on where both players were at in terms of their return to play um, like even when we asked uh, the FAI what the situation was with Mannion before she had her first scan when the Premier League squad was announced and she wasn't in it their response afterwards was like there's nothing scary there she just needs time and you're like okay well just needs time is like she just needs a nap she needs like a weekend she needs you know a couple of months to recuperate what's that mean and then I think because she posted that video of her getting on an Aer Lingus flight yesterday everyone was a bit like oh is this is this a good sign is this not clearly it wasn't uh, and maybe she didn't think it was either or what was going to happen would happen uh, if she was posting pictures but um, and then Megan Campbell has been a strange one because she hasn't really been involved in the squad or with Liverpool all that much since like before the US games but there's never really been all that inf- much information on what's actually wrong with her and what injury she's returning from. Um, she was at the game against Zambia on what day was that? Last Thursday, and she was walking around afterwards in her tracksuit and like signing things with the fans. Obviously, she had given her place in the squad hotel to Izzy Atkinson, who hasn't, who wasn't actually in even the preliminary squad initially. She was kind of one of the standby players. So yeah, those are two big losses because those are like two of your starting 11 that are 100% apparently not going. Mm. But the other is, I mean, Leanne Kiernan, we've had so many backs and forths about her, but I suppose it must have come down to the fact she just hasn't played enough football. She's probably played maybe just under a full game since September. I thought, I know, like Karen said on Koi Gig, that she was one of the few that was kind of breaking the line for Ireland against Zambia in that first half, but I also just thought she looked really rusty, like her first touch was really poor at different chances and obviously as an Ireland team you kind of we don't have a lot of opportunities to score so when you do get them you really need to pounce on them um, so I'm not massively surprised about that not really that surprised about Jamie Finn either I had her on my standby list uh, for the team I did yesterday so Finn, Finn started against Scotland doesn't she she's a bit of a favourite of she, well she complained in a number of positions I guess which is the argument for her well she yeah but she has kind of fallen out of favour in recent times um, like she was it the Finland game she got a ban for did she start against Scotland I thought she or sorry she yeah, got, she, I think she started against Scotland I thought she got a maybe it was a Scotland game then she got um, a ban for she got a, a, another yellow card but she has fallen out of favour with Vera Powell in recent months and even the fact that she wasn't really looking like she was getting on on Thursday I would have thought she was one of the players that would have needed the time to show up for Vera so the fact that she didn't even get near the starting team or that team that came on in the second half that's what made me think she might be a standby player because she has that history of 
getting in quite regularly before, but also wasn't getting the opportunity in that game. So, yeah, quite surprised Harriet Scott is um, on the cohort of three. And then, of course, we have, apparently, we're bringing four goalkeepers, which I just... I don't I, understand that. That's either. mad, yeah. There used to be a coach. Was, was, it, was it Brian Clough? I was thinking about this yesterday, but there was a coach... Who didn't? Yeah, the never used to put a yeah, Phil Jagielka used to the be bench. the standing goalkeeper, and they bring on a defender instead. Yeah, mm. um, it was a waste of the space. That's probably the extreme, though, isn't it? Kiernan, yeah. Kiernan, I feel most sympathy for in the whole mix. I must say, like the others, obviously, as we've touched on, there are bits of injuries, niggling injuries, and stuff, and so you can kind of it's like not the most unexpected thing in the world. Mm. Whereas Keenan, uh, Kiernan, um, like obviously, her goal scoring record for Ireland um, would need to be better, I think, to make it a no brainer. But she's gone from what you would think would be uh, starting starting 11. Is she in yeah. the 11? Is she on the bench? To not been in the squad. And I think that um, she's obviously had to battle injuries over the last few years. That's definitely hampered her. I do remember her time under Colin Bell with Ireland and how frustrating that was for her because she was like coming into the international season as a very young player at that stage and she was been left to forage alone and that must have been hard for her and you know it just feels like she can't catch a break. And she's the one that I think that would probably feel most hard done by probably this morning yeah like this is what I said before and I got a bit of grief about it from certain people but like Vera Powell has never been a fan of Leanne Kiernan even when she was playing in the championship and she was like top scorer in the championship whipping in goals every other week for Liverpool and doing so in impressive form I know you're you can say like well championships different standards to WSL of course it is but when she did have her brief opportunity to play in the WSL, she looked as good. But Vera Powell, because of the way she's always set up this team, has just never really seemed to favour Leanne Kiernan. Why do you think that um, is the case? I think because she is more of that out-and-out striker position and Vera prefers players who can do a multitude of things and also has always preferred playing with like a back five or a back four and focusing on defence and midfield rather than our attack but it never made sense for me that we were playing say someone like Heather Payne mm. alone up top and like Heather is great I think she's far more suited to the wings where she is now but like that she didn't have necessarily the like goal poaching ability but she had the running ability so like she could start off deep in the other half and all of a sudden run the whole the ball up the whole way but then would lose a bit of steam or she'd be able to take the ball down when it was hoofed up to her but also didn't have the maybe the necessary skill to kind of take it in a little bit further and take her shot whereas I always thought Leanne Kiernan did have that ability if we gave her more time within the squad. Now maybe it is a case that obviously like you said Adrian she has had quite a few injuries over the last um, couple of years and some quite serious ones that she struggled to come back from. But she did have that whole run in the championship where she just wasn't utilised from an Irish perspective, which is why when she had only played like less than 90 minutes of football this season, I was, well, this half of the season, I was a bit like, I don't know if Vera is going to put her trust in her considering she wasn't doing it when she was playing regularly mm. and she got that half against Zambia like mm. she's, she's not scoring the goals for Ireland and as you say when you're in and out of the team maybe that's harder but then when you're in the team the pressure is on to actually do it she got that half against Zambia she had a ver few very heavy touches I thought and mm. like if you were Vera Powell in that conversation and she probably had her mind 99.9% .9 made up anyway but you're looking at that and as much as Amber Barrett scoring in the second half endorsed that selection the heavy touches probably just meant that 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 was it mm. for her like yeah, it became a no-brainer so. and I think as well the whole thing that Vera said afterwards was that like the team were 
to were scared to fail in that first half and that's what let them down. Now I did think in fairness to Kiernan she did break the line a couple of times and did try stuff but the only thing is she was offside and I was like it, it's so hard to know like maybe because Vera's seen her in training she's going to know this better but like is that hasn't had a lot of match time and with like a bit of training uh, some competitive time can she get that back Maybe, maybe Vera thinks it's too much of a risk to try and get that back in the next three weeks until the actual tournament kicks off. Um, so, yeah. Does it mean that Amber Barrett is guaranteed to start? Uh, I don't know if it means she's absolutely guaranteed to start, but it definitely gives her a better chance of starting. Do you think there was any danger that Barrett wasn't going to travel if she didn't have the half against Zambia? I think so, yeah. I mean, I've said this all along and like even Barrett herself said it when we talked to her after the Zambia game. She was like, this is the first time in months I've actually relaxed because I felt like for so long, like she was in the exact same position as say, Leanne Kiernan was in the sense that she hadn't played, I don't think she'd played more than like 60 minutes of football since like January or something. Um, In terms of like with her club team and stuff between injuries and then also with I, it just sounded like she was just not in a good position there with the club mm-hmm. even though she was very respectful of them and like the history that they have it just sounded like the whatever the coaching setup was possibly wasn't getting on all that well with them so she was kind of in that similar position in that she needed game time and she needed the opportunity to prove herself and I think like she said mentally that that penalty was important but I think more so that scoring from play was really goal, really important yeah I mean you couldn't have asked for a nicer goal as well to score I think she was going for what it's worth we had this conversation a while ago obviously but mm. I did feel that like that ability to be able to turn to somebody uh, in a World Cup who said to me mm. give me the ball put me in <laughs> and I can score it'd be interesting to find out later on was she in the team? Was she in the squad before she got those goals or not? I think that would yeah. be interesting. Yeah, presumably Vera Power will reveal little bits of that kind of information at the press conference. The, the she'll, man, certainly, she'll certainly be It'll be interesting to know as well, though, because like Vera's been so... I mean, I'm, I'm surprised even that the team has leaked as much as it has. I thought maybe you might hear one or two names, but um, she's been very strict on the fact that she's aware that a lot of players are going to be absolutely devastated this morning, that they've missed out on, you know, one one of the great opportunities to be part of the first ever squad to go to a World Cup on the women's side. Um, so I think, I don't know how much she's going to go into, well, she'll obviously be asked, but I don't know how much she's going to go into, like, oh yeah, th- this person was like 95% there and like the 5%. Well, you try and give some of those players a bit of cold comfort, wouldn't you? Like it's, you were close. Is that comfort though? Uh, maybe not. Do you have um, a preferred starting team for the opener against Australia, knowing what we know? Oh, I feel like because of the injuries now and the players that aren't going, I would need to like almost sit down and re-go through all my positions because like I would have had Mannion and Megan Campbell indefinitely and obviously that's going to change the back line now. So I assume... It's the thing, it's also like who does Vera bring instead of them? So defensively, does that mean like Clara Reardon's in? Does it mean Megan Connolly dropping back into the back and then that leaves a position open in midfield? So then do you bring Kira Grant in her place because she can kind of play in a couple of different positions? Uh, or do you stick someone like Hayley Nolan in there who was like voted player of the championship this year? So I think it, at the moment my starting 11 will be a little unsettled depending on who else Vera decides to put in the squad. 
the Mannion injury must be really I'll bad. Tell you tomorrow morning. I definitely, <laughs> yeah, I definitely thought um, it was an opportunity. Like Kathleen, I think was making the point in the show yesterday that she tends to use sort of 15 players anyway, right? Mm. So there's a whole pile of players who are going out there. And of course, it's an unbelievable thing to have in your CV, whether you play or not. I was at the World Cup and that's it. And you're on the inside looking at it and that's pretty cool. Um, but on the basis that she's probably going to use about 15 players over the course of it, unless like unless the manual injury is really bad, I would have thought there was some case for still bringing her, even though I accept that she'll come back from injury. You'd have to accept that she obviously won't have that match sharpness, but... And mm. we know sort of the impact that she can have from an Irish point of view it must have been very tempting to include her on the basis that you know she's not going to play the first couple of games yeah. maybe she'll get in for the last game and maybe whatever happens beyond that like that it would have been almost on that basis worth taking the risk Yeah this has been the great debate of the last couple of weeks I think every single person I've talked to has a different take on it uh, so I was chatting to Emma Byrne last night about it and she was saying that Vera was making one of the greatest mistakes she could ever make by not including the girls even though they may be able to well like obviously we don't know the depths of the injuries but if there's a potential for them to be fit for even one or two of the games it's worth bringing them and then Karen Duggan was having the complete opposite opinion and I, I think she makes a fair point and it's something a couple of people have brought up to me is that you maybe less so Megan Campbell say Aoife Mannion she has so few caps and she's played so few times with the team and by all accounts she slotted in very well with the squad when she was there like i I didn't talk to anyone who didn't say she was lovely, but she also hasn't been on that journey with the team. And if you're leaving out uh, either a younger player or someone, who, a veteran with the squad or someone within the squad who carries a good standing or keeps a squad on an even keel in terms of a personality, <clears throat> does that sort of stuff matter as well? And is, like, How much is Vera weighing up that when making these decisions? Which... To be honest, having never been in a professional setup wasn't even something I had really thought of. I was literally thinking about the 11 on the pitch and like whatever four or five subs might come on at various different stages. Um, and a lot of people have been going back and forth by the which is more important. And the thing is, we can probably never settle on it because we're not in that squad and we don't know fully what the dynamics are between players and coaches and you know, maybe there's people in the squad who'd be happier to see someone who's there that they get on with really well, who they've trekked through the last, however, 10 years with, or else someone who they know going to a World Cup is going to ensure the next 10 years of Irish football and major competitions. So mm. it's, a, it's a tough one. I don't know. Is there a way that you fall down on it, Adrian? Do you think it's definitely the bring them even if they are injured... I, I, the only the only doubt in the response to the question is how injured she is. Mm. Like, if, if it's a case and she'll get asked today, she might say she ain't coming back for another six weeks properly. And that's for sure. That's definite. There's no question about it. Then I think then it's a no-brainer. But I definitely think on the basis that there isn't going to be mix and match, it'll be best 11 on the pitch every single time, then there is a case for bringing her. Like, mm. you're if you're in England or USA, I think you take those players, don't you? If you're expected to go deep in the tournament and you're like, we're going to have time yeah. to bring these players in. If, you're, just, if you're Ireland, you, you might have only three, four games. It's the unanswerable about how injured she is. Yeah, but that's the yeah. thing, maybe, like, I'd say Vera Powell knows more. But like, there that, is a case. You know, that there's 
There is a case for it. Like, and, and the Campbell one, like... They, they might have explored that option already, though, a few days ago. Like, surely there's possibly, a case to ring her and there's just none. I'm, I'm sure she'll explain today. You shed a tear over the, uh, the, the lack of the long throw-in. You do. Well, you do, Like, yeah. you really do. Because it would have been... Well, also her as a player, like, but... Yeah, I look at sure, but, the like, throw, the long yeah, throw, yeah, throw Whatever. How much time would we have spent talking okay, about the threat of the long no, throw-in in match previous? It's spot on. I mean, it was practically a... Another set piece for us. But we not just got her on the pitch, like just to do. What, what injury does she have? What's the injury? Well, that's the thing. It, like it hasn't really been reported okay. what injury yeah. she has. Um, well, unless it affects her arms. Yeah, yeah. She'll have that answer. Throw. She'll have it the said, answer ready to go today. Like she's going to be asked that. Yeah. Yeah. That's the first question almost. I mean, it just said that in the articles today that she'd been struggling with fitness, and like I know even when she wasn't included in the US squad or the travel that the squad that traveled to the US, there wasn't a whole lot of information about what it was mm. and it's been the same out of Liverpool in the time like mm. I don't think she played again after that for them maybe a couple of minutes but nothing nothing mad Yeah, we will find out later this morning so uh, we're obviously working off uh, the preliminary reports the so-called leaked squad that's uh, to be confirmed by Vera Pau later this morning so all 31 players were apparently informed of their status yesterday and Vera Pau will of course convey the, the background to the uh, media at the UCD Bowl later on this morning so we'll update you on that as soon as we, we hear news I should uh, before we uh, move on and, or come back rather to, to the squad I should mention what's coming up between now and 10 o'clock on OTB this uh, Wednesday morning so uh, standing by at 7.55am in the next 5-10 minutes we'll be chatting to Martin Lipton uh, Harry Kane of course looks uh, potentially set for a move to Bayern Munich so that'll be a move that Spurs fans be interested to hear your thoughts let us know in the YouTube comments this morning at 8.15 we'll have John Fallon who uh, as we said earlier uh, wrote one of those pieces uh, that his piece in the Irish Examiner of course that uh, appears to hint at the nature of this Irish squad for the World Cup at half past 8 we'll have Willow Callaghan's power rankings hurling power rankings of course we'll see if those change or have changed since the, the weekend's games of course uh, Keith Woods you had to be there really looking forward to this at uh, 10 to 9 as well we have a bit of time to go through it with Keith and uh, he's picked out five of the moments from his career that he uh, most remembers performances that stand out for him and then Matt Slater highlights from uh, him at half past 9 um, like when you think of the the, the, sto- the um, I guess the news that was conveyed to players over the last 24 hours or so you think of the likes of Saoirse Noonan down in Cork who's been disappointed potentially Denise O'Sullivan on the, on the other hand we saw some video yesterday I think we have some uh, footage of this uh, down in Cork the uh, the going away party I want to say this is outside her mother's house or her home house in Cork yeah not the union yeah not the union yeah I think it was local sort of organised bigger than she expected it to be and uh, was it the Nakamini band that turned up as well apparently Denise was like absolutely beat rude at this stage it's funny for all she's like a show woman on the pitch she's not necessarily a big showy sort of person mm. you could just see in some of the photos there were of her last night doing the rounds on Twitter and other parts of social media how absolutely delighted she was she was just like laughing her head off the whole time so that is the other side of this to people missing out that there are also players like herself and Katie and whoever else makes a squad who very much deserve this. It's a difficult thing because the ones who miss out deserve it. The ones who get there deserve it as well. It's it's the nature of this being our first ever tournament. It's particularly hard to see people miss out and it's particularly good to see how happy the oh. ones are that are making it. For some of them, like the, the proudest day of their careers is 
going to be today when they're picked in a World Cup squad and probably only um, overtaken maybe on July 20th when they actually play in a World Cup match. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing them and all their families and stuff tonight in the Mansion House. The Off the Ball Sky event should be good. 100%. we chatting to them all tomorrow as well, so there'll be interviews with all 23 players between myself, Nathan and Ashley. We have an hour to get round to every single player. No pressure. So it's going to be a little bit of a speed dating situation, but should be good crack. Looking forward to the Mansion House as well. That'll be uh, a lot of smiley heads, no doubt, uh, this evening, as you say. Kathleen, did want to touch on this uh, before we move on. Robbie Keane, back in management uh, with Maccabi Tel Aviv in Israel, new head coach. Uh, and the quotes from him in the papers, certainly this morning, he was asked about... Uh, somewhat negative reaction to on social media to his uh, appointment on a two-year two contract to manage a club in Israel. Um, he says, this is the last time I will say it. I do not want to get into the politics. I'm here as a football man and as someone who loves the game. So the uh, Ireland-Palestine solidarity campaign had said after this appointment, uh, there is a Palestinian sporting boycott and call for the expulsion of the Israeli FA from FIFA and UEFA due to apartheid Israel's crimes against the Palestinian people. So it's deeply disappointing to see Robbie Keane go to manage Maccabi Tel Aviv. This is an interesting one, lads. Um, so he was asked to address a number of different topics, but, uh, of course, this um, link and uh, controversy about him managing a club in Israel is clearly not something he wants to get into. Well, this is his first full-time managerial gig for Abbie Keane, and he's clearly had to scrape and scratch around for it. He's been, obviously, number two at a load of different uh, places, including with Ireland. Do you remember the Mick McCarthy conference where mm. he said, how did all this come about? And Mick said, oh, the cheeky bee, uh, you know, sort of elbowed his way into the gig. And that's fair enough. That's kind of t- tends to be how a lot of it happens. Um, you imagine he must have been in the mix for... He must have interviewed for an awful lot of gigs. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm sure if he's going there, it's not his lifelong boyhood amb- ambition to get to Israel, right? So I'm assuming that Maccabi Tel Aviv is somewhere down the list of clubs that Robbie Keane wanted. I'm sure that he must have been looking at, what, League One, League Two teams, if that's the case, and yeah. just failing to be able to get a break for it. But I, I do, I certainly looked at those quotes. Uh, he, he, Before he said that he was here as a football man and someone who loves the game, he said, this is the last time I'll say it. Like, there was definitely the vibe of, it's my ball and I'm, and I'm taking it and I'm going home, about, about the comments and a, a blindness almost to what was going on around him. What I couldn't understand is why he didn't just sit down and look at, I don't know, I'm assuming the club who've been through seven managers in the last three years are briefing the managers that come in to talk about this stuff um, and probably briefing them all in the same sort of way as in saying nothing. But how couldn't you sit down and say, look, there clearly are issues in this country. There, you know, Clearly much of it is not good. Innocent, innocent people are dying um, they're innocent people are being targeted. While I'm here, I'm going to educate myself a little bit about all that stuff, and I'll speak about that down the line. So this, this sort of, um, you know, you're you're sat there now. Uh, uh, you say like obviously about a reaction on social media, but and he talks about politics. But I mean, it's not politics. Like I was looking up last night some of the um, areas that he's now associating himself with. Uh, one report that I read on a Human Rights Watch website was saying that across four days in May this year, while targeting members and commanders of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad movement, Israel killed 33 people. And it says that that includes six children and three women. How can you be blind to that stuff so much as to sit down and say, I'm a football man and I'm not talking about it anymore? There's a, there's a sniff of Eddie Howe being asked about the Saudi Arabian links in, in one of his early press conferences when they came on board and very much him saying, I don't want to talk about this, I'm a football manager. Um, like You've got the, the reaction from, from different politicians in Ireland as well, Sinn Féin TD, Chris Andrews, uh, had a strong statement, declared Maccabi as an apartheid club. 
uh, an account of Israel's actions in Palestine. It's also just silly coming out with those quotes when you consider the links that Ireland has with Palestine and like how strong the BDS movement is here in general. Presumably Robbie Keane was aware of, of Ireland's strong links with Palestine. Well, like, you'd say presumably, but like there's nothing presumptuous about it. Like maybe he doesn't. Maybe yeah. he doesn't have a. Maybe he doesn't have a clue about stuff yeah. that's going on. Like someone who has spent their life so dedicated. And I'm not saying it's an excuse. I absolutely do not think it is. I think someone should have pulled him aside and been like just checking you do know what you're getting yourself into here but like in some ways I find his stuff almost worse than Eddie Howe because there, it's one thing having the money and having the money come in and you're still sitting pretty in Newcastle and it's another thing going to the country you know driving through certain parts of the country or going to different towns where like it's occupied territory or you know like you're properly engrossing yourself in the culture and in everything that's happening around you and then to just sit back and just be like I know it's just, even if just about the football to, lads it's all even about if the football. he wants to stay a football man like you said it's very difficult to concentrate what success is going to be like at that club Like yeah. they've been through a raft of managers the last couple of years they're expected to dominate domestically. He's going to have to do something extraordinary in Europe. So I actually don't know what it does for his managerial career. Well, so, it's, okay. it's, it's a break. That's it for him. And that's all he's seen. It Like, uh, Tel Aviv is a very secular city. You can go about your business there in the same way that you would in any other, what we might call, Western city mm. and be, be largely blind to the stuff that's going on if that's how you so choose. But... You know, um, it's the last time I'm going to address it. I hope that I don't yeah. know who was asking him the questions at the press conference yesterday, but I do hope that uh, there are follow-ons. Last time we get asked, yeah, hundred um, percent. Did want to mention before we move on briefly. Martin Lipton standing by for us. The uh, the Irish men's sevens team qualifying again for the Olympic Games. Huge achievement for them. Uh, so that. Uh, Ireland progressed to the knockout stages first as Pule winners. They had beaten Poland, Italy and Germany and then overcame Belgium in the quarterfinals, Portugal in the last four uh, and yesterday, brilliant, 26 points to 12 win over Great Britain um, to uh, crown that European Games glory and the ticket to the uh, the Paris Games, of course, next year. The women's team qualifying for the first time uh, quite recently as well. So, huge achievement. I mean, massive. Um, bit of breaking news there that um, Steve, da, Dan McDonald reporting in the Irish Independent that Stephen Kenny will get the chance to bring Ireland into the France and Holland games I mean this is as expected but uh, his performance uh, Dan writes in the Irish Independent was discussed in the regular monthly meeting of the FAI board last night with standard review the June window just one of the number of uh, topics on the agenda and he will stay there mm, Interesting developments perhaps unsurprising as you say but definitely uh, I guess a bit, bit of relaxation for Stephen Kenny now that he can uh, move on and push on with those two games at 7.59am on this Wednesday morning's OTBM with Gillette Labs get the ultimate shave all your money back Neon Night Edition available now time to say a very good morning to the football writer Martin Lipton morning Martin hello Martin can you hear us I'm oh, sorry I, I, I was struggling there yes I am here sorry, apologies I'm a, a slightly dodgy uh Link in Krakow, where I am at the moment. Ah, you're okay. We got you. We got you. Um, Harry Kane to Bayern. Is this uh, is this looking ever ever closer now that he appears to want to leave, and certainly uh, his his desire for trophies might lead him there. It's so difficult to to work this one out because clearly Bayern Munich are interested, and I think there's there's evidently been an approach to to Kane. Uh, but the sticking point is is remains Daniel Levy. Is he going to sell at all? And if he is, what's the price? And I suspect the price will be significantly more than Bayern Munich are willing to pay. So that might preclude a deal taking part uh, taking place in, in, in any case. It's a difficult dilemma because obviously there's a, a significant risk that Kane runs his contract down and walks away for nothing. But the issue, I guess, is 
what is the best chance of Tottenham being in the Champions League next season? And the answer to that is quite clearly with Harry Kane still at the club this season. So there's the balance that has to be made. And there will still be the belief that if Postacoglu can prove over the next few months that he's turning things around, that that will be enough to persuade Kane to sign a new contract in any event. So £60 million plus add-ons seems to be the, the the opening bid, which was deemed too low by Spurs. They want around £100 million, uh, as you said, a standing chance of this going through. Uh, but but as you say, Martin, he's out of contract next summer. So do do Spurs and Daniel Levy have a leg to stand on here? Will they have to just get rid of him for maybe less than the, the, the transfer fee that they desire? No. I mean, I think economically you would say that's the move to make. But tr- truly they don't have to. Um, and it will be a risk uh, if, of him walking away for nothing at the end of the season if he stays on this through this this coming campaign. But it does appear that that is the risk they're, they're willing to take at this juncture. Now, this could all be good, hardball negotiating tactics to try and get that bid towards the hundred million which they're, they're talking about. I mean, I think it would be difficult to turn that sort of money down. But if you open at sixty, you're unlikely to go to a hundred, aren't you? I mean, it's, it's too big a lump, a, a jump, really. You would think. Um, and are Bayern really that desperate to get in, or are they or are they more keen to try to look as though they're appeasing Tuchel? That's another issue mm. because that's the fair. Despite winning the league last season, Tuchel didn't make a very positive impact, and indeed they wouldn't have won the league if Dortmund hadn't blown up on the final weekend. There are reports that, that Bayern have their other backup options, including uh, Victor Osimhen from, from Napoli. You have Randall Colomuani from uh, Eintracht Frankfurt, Dusan Vlahovic from Juventus, in case this, this game deal doesn't go through. Um, like, Will Daniel Levy, I guess, be more willing to accept a lower transfer fee because it's not a Premier League side, not a rival, Martin, you reckon? I think that's the most uh, likely scenario. If he, if he is to go, it will be to a team outside of of the Premier League because the last thing Levy wants is to for him to be scoring goals against Tottenham next season because that would just be you know another dagger in the in the back every time he he did um, and as we know I think it's fair to say that Levy's not always the most popular chairman in the Premier League uh, with the fans um, it's interesting actually they are spending money or looking looking to spend money now some might look at that and think oh that they're spending the money before they get it in I they know they're going to sell Kane an easy thing to say. The, the one you have to remember is that Tottenham are financially better off than pretty much everyone, apart from the uh, the, the Gulf state-enabled, you know, the, the superpower clubs, the state-aided clubs, um, because of their traditional um, low revenue, uh, income to wages uh, ratio and also the fact that they're getting so much money through the gate and other other things every, every season. You know, this season just passed they would have grossed more than half a billion pounds. There was a suggestion by uh, Jamie O'Hara on TalkSport yesterday that it would be a step down from uh, going to Bayern Munich and it was all, the context of it was the balance of that question as to whether he wanted to stay on and become the Premier League's all-time uh, goal scorer or go and try and win trophies at, at Bayern. And I see Alan Shearer in The Athletic this morning saying that uh, he, uh, in his own experience, would have to go out and try, and, uh, try to win something. Where do you think when uh, all those little things are on the on the scales for Harry Kane over the coming days and weeks, what sort of a competitor is he, Martin? Is he, I want to stay here and have legacy in England or I want to go and win stuff in Germany? 
I think he'd like to get some silverware on the ball. There's no doubt about that. But at the same time, he also is desperate to beat Shearer's record. There's no question of, of that. I mean, you could argue as well, look, Shearer scored from this point, the, the age Kane is now, to the end of his career. Shearer scored 84 goals in six seasons for a team that is significantly worse than the team Kane would play for, whoever that team would be. That was not a great Newcastle team. So even if Kane were to go abroad for two years, and I'm not saying it will happen by the way, but if, if you were to go to Munich for two seasons, win two titles because he would, potentially have a deep run in the Champions League because he would, um, he could then come back and he'd still have four years to score 48 goals at 12 goals a season. Now, you'd back him to do that because the, the talent's clearly there. And unless he was to have a significant, serious injury, he could, he could in four seasons, even at 36 at the end of it, comfortably, I think, break that record. Also, if he goes abroad, like he's out of the goldfish bowl and the Premier League thing becomes less important for him probably in a couple of years. No, it's the most important thing. He wants to break that record because that's... He, he, because I think, and it's a legitimate argument, the era of players staying at a club or staying at a league for their entire career has, has ended. Players will move more. You know, how, how long will Holland stay in England for? Three years tops, you would think? Mm. So if you set a, a new mark of getting it towards 300 Premier League goals, Kane will think that will last forever. That will be the enduring legacy. It will never be broken. I guess any interest from Real Madrid depends on Kylian Mbappe's future, Martin. But has the Manchester United interest in Harry Kane significantly cooled off? I guess the the asking price is the, is the sticking point there, really. Yeah, they, their money men will not sanction paying that much for someone they can potentially get for nothing in a year's time. Or so it appears, despite the fact that Ten Hag wants him. Uh and I think he would have been interested, no question, in, in United. It doesn't appear, though, that he's pushing to get out. I mean, two years ago, at this point in the summer, it was pretty clear that he wanted to leave. But as I said, it was more, less than he wanted to leave, more that he felt he couldn't stay. Um, that doesn't appear to be the case this summer. We, you didn't have the grand wave goodbye at the end of the season, which you, you, you know, or any significant sing, uh, indication that he'd had enough. So... He's thinking, well, look, you know, I've got all my options open in 12 months' time. I can stay here. I can move. If I do move, I'm going to get a, a huge signing-on fee wherever I go. I'll still get big bucks. I, I'm in charge of my own destiny. I mean, that may be he feels the smartest play anyhow. Ambition is one thing that, I guess, with Spurs, Harry Kane wants to, wants to see, and, and certainly with transfers, incoming transfers. You know, last year's performance so so poor in terms of an 8th place finish and yet you see the likes of James Madison potentially coming in from Leicester City would that maybe give Harry Kane pause for concern and, and I guess something to think about because even Ange Postecoglou coming into the club all of a sudden surely Kane is thinking well this guy this guy is exciting yeah I mean whether he knows enough about Postecoglou to, to make that judgement I don't know he'll obviously been studying and trying to find out a bit more what is evident is that Tottenham are willing to spend money and are looking to back back the manager um, the goalkeeper's in they've, they've confirmed um, Kulisevsky Madison appears to be on the verge of being done at 40 odd million 
there have to be three centre-halves, I think, and a few others. I mean, this is not the, the end of the spending. It's got to be the beginning to to, conf- to persuade anyone that they're going in the right direction. Um, but they will be noting it. You know, it, Spurs haven't had a number 10, a playmaker, since they let Ericsson go. That's nearly four years ago. Um, Madison, dead ball specialist as well, will create, will score, is a good player. It's a sign that the fans, that type of player, the Tottenham fans have been crying out for for mm. quite some time. And at 26 years of age, I guess Madison fits a, a positive age profile as well. And, and you, you, you look at the way that certainly Ange Postacoglu set up at Celtic, you'll expect him at Spurs to adopt a bit of a 4-3-3 as well. He fits nicely, you'd imagine, Madison, into, into whatever plan he has at Spurs. Yeah, I mean, look, we're assuming he's going to play... With a you know a four three three an aggressive high press and try to invert the fullbacks everything he did at, at Celtic well, we will find out. You need a dressing that isn't resistant to change. I mean, Tottenham have been the sleepwalkers eleven, haven't they, for the last few years? Uh, bailed out by the centre forward, um, and that's not going to be the way they play anymore. A lot of those players, I, I suspect, will not be suited to playing with that intensity, and they'll have to go. Um, but as a cultural change, a reset. It's exactly what the supporters need to see. They need to be galvanised. They need to be infused. They need to be able to keep their eyes open, which wasn't necessarily the case over the last couple of seasons. You mentioned the goalkeeping position there as well, Martin, and that's probably been one that's cropped up in every transfer window of late for for Tottenham managers, whoever they may have been. Um, but uh, Guglielmo Vicario from Empoli has been uh, confirmed as a signing on a five-year deal. Uh, £16.4 million is the reported transfer fee as well I mean this has been mooted for quite some time Spurs needed a long term successor for, for Hugo Lloris and they appear to have got him Yeah look he's been signed to be number one Lloris will go now I mean Lloris has had a fantastic time at Tottenham he really has he's been there over a decade you know, he's been part of the furniture been through a lot of the managerial changes he probably needs time to, to you know, finish his career elsewhere whether that be in France or Saudi or, or wherever it might choose to be um, and they've signed the replacement I think they clearly were interested in Ray and, and Brentford refused to budge uh, over what they Spurs believe was a, an overinflated price um, I wonder where that idea comes from with Daniel there you go um, uh, and they then went out and got the, the other one who was on the list who was you know who's had a decent season in Italy I haven't seen enough of him to make a make a judgment I do not know what I'm hearing is he's got good reactions and he's very good with his feet and you know that's prerequisite now for for a top goalkeeper but let's see his talent his standard when he comes here it's it's probably too early to judge there are other uh, transfer rumblings across London at the moment Martin uh, not least Declan Rice and uh, we're, we're I guess waiting to see whether he ends up likely at Arsenal or Manchester City so Arsenal uh, have made a third bid for Declan Rice worth £105 million so this is reported as a £100 million fee and £5 million in performance related add-ons this of course coming after Manchester City's £90 million bid was turned down by West Ham Um, they of course had two club record bids already rejected Arsenal Uh, West Ham seemed to be looking for £120 million Martin but I mean I guess the player wants to stay in London so Arsenal seems still the the more likely destination really yeah, you would think so. I mean, it all depends desperately how or how desperate rather City are to to gazump Arsenal. But it is a proper auction, isn't it? Now, <laughs> and they're both going in with with bids that are now meeting the sort of figures that West Ham want to hear. 
and then it comes down to who is the cleanest and who can persuade Rice. I think if City came in and uh, and trumped Arsenal's bid, then West Ham would have no compunction in selling to City, and then it would be up to to uh, um, to Guardiola to persuade Rice that he wants him in his team. But I think he would definitely have him in his team, and he would be a key player in, in the dominant dominant side. You go to Arsenal. And you become the central cog in the side that's trying to break through and to become the dominant side. Um, it's actually not a bad position to be in. Wherever he goes, he goes, he goes well, doesn't he? He gets to a, a huge club that's going in the right direction. So I think if you're Declan Rice, you're as happy as you can be. And you also, you've played this whole exit extremely well. You've not kicked up a fuss. You've let it be known what your position was. You've gone out having lifted a trophy with West Ham. You could hardly have been more faultless in his in, in his movements over the last few months. Market value is a funny thing, but if Harry Kane is worth sixty, maybe sixty-five million, is Declan Rice worth double that? Well, I think Harry Kane's worth more than sixty million. And that's why he's not going to go for sixty million. Um, and and Rice is younger, um, and he's in a, a position where people are looking. For that and need that as the, the you know the, the the cog in the middle of the of the wheel, and evidently if two clubs are paired to go to over a hundred million, then he is worth that. I, I think a lot of people will, will, in the Premier League and certainly at West Ham will look at the money that Chelsea paid for Enzo Fernandez and say, well, there you are. That's the sort of price you have to pay for a, for your central midfielder. Now, I personally think that if you're talking about overpriced, Fernandez is the prime example of that. I think that Chelsea played the take the top Bowley premium of about 150% of more than he's worth because I think he's a £40 million player but uh, obviously Chelsea know better than I Yeah, we'll keep an eye on the, the Declan Rice situation and of course the Harry Kane situation over the, the coming hours and days Martin, great stuff as always thanks for hopping on Cheers, bye-bye Brilliant stuff, football writer Martin Lipton joining us there uh, on OTBM with Gillette Labs get the ultimate shave all your money back in the United edition available now it is 8.14am on this Wednesday morning's programme uh, during the break we're going to hear a clip from the latest episode of the Football Pod where James and Tommy assess the counties that were eliminated from the championship over the weekend the Football Pod is a partnership with AIB proud sponsors of the Football Hurling and Camogie All-Ireland Club Championships check out the hashtag the toughest for more after the break we're diving, diving deep again into the reported Republic of Ireland women's national team squad for the World Cup with John Fallon back in a sec 17 minutes past 8 on this Wednesday morning's OTBM with myself and Adrian delighted to welcome to the show this morning the Irish Examiner's John Fallon morning John morning gents how are you doing keeping well keeping well you were a busy man yesterday evening uh, got this scoop of the reported leaked Irish squad for the World Cup um, confident of your sources <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I wasn't quite leaked now. There was just a few different angles coming. You know, obviously some people were very happy and some people weren't. Mm. So just just started attacking it all together. And um, yeah, some of them were, were quite really inevitable when you think about it, really in terms of injury and where we are, like with the countdown to 20th of July, just the injuries were just, they were just too tight in terms of turning them around. Um we're talking about Ethan Mannion, really, and Megan Connolly, or Megan um, Campbell. They're the two, I suppose, who were really struggling for fitness and um, just just didn't just didn't have the time really to to make it into the final twenty three. So yeah, we'll know officially, I suppose, later on this morning. Um, but it's unfortunate for the two of those players. They're two huge blows, aren't they? I mean, of course, as you say, they were struggling for fitness, Aoife, with, with Manchester United and uh, Megan Campbell with Liverpool towards the end of the season. And yet, still, there was always the hope, I guess, that they'd, that they'd be fit to make it. But um, 
they are two massive absentees. Yeah, and and I suppose the the temptation is to keep them in and then just 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 keep it all the way up till I think they have up to nineteenth up to the eve of the tournament, and um, for them to prove their fitness. But you know, bear in mind we're playing Australia, we're playing against Sam Kerr, who's probably the best striker in the world. They're both defenders, particularly Eva Mannion. She's had a history of knee injuries, unfortunately. Just come out of a knee brace, I think, yesterday. And, you know, the idea of her trying to regain her fitness in the next three weeks and keep up with Sam Kerr, just really, when you know, when you think think about it in just in practical sense, this was never really going to happen. So um, I think it's best just to call it now. And that's what they've done. And we, thankfully, is one area we have an abundance of options. And, um, yeah, it's unfortunate because Aoife started to declare quite late in terms of, you know, the, 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 the cycle here. She came in in February, did really well in Marbella and looked at a big addition. Um, but once we saw her in that brace, I think it was the second last WSL game of the year. Um, she was on the pitch, you know, that was, that was really sending alarm bells. So, uh, Vera had seemed quite positive about her potentially making it. It was going to be a really tight call. Um, but just these things, you know, it's, 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 it's just, you just can't really, you know, you can't really take the, the chance in it. And she is so, and I think our contract at Man United is out, out as a lap. So there's other different factors as well. Does she go? Does she go? Like, does she go with a free agent? Are the negotiations of a club going on at the moment? Whereby, given our history, she's risking, you know, aggravating that injury. Um, I suppose we'll find out a bit more information today, but, um, uh, just, I know Vera was quite eager to, to make the call quite early, earlier than even she had to do so. And, um, I believe Aoife is in England at the moment, just getting treatment on, on that injury. Leanne Kiernan's expected absence. That's huge. Um, and, and I guess you saw her in the in the recent game as well, where she maybe didn't look to her be- at her best. And we were discussing this morning maybe her relative lack of goal scoring at international level, certainly with Ireland. Um, and even Kathleen McNamee was was kind of saying, us, saying to us this morning, she's never really been a player that that Vera Powell has has took a shine to massively. No, it's just 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 an ankle injury. It's just it's it's severe. It's coming back, and you're in a department there where you're sort of. That in the air, where you know, Sarah Noonan played last week. Abby Larkin's there as well. I think Abby's got the nod. So, um, yeah, it was it was going to be a marginal one. You know, we were with the Liverpool players. It was it was Neve Fahey and Leanne who were coming back quite late in the season, very very late in the season. So, um, Leanne just hasn't just hasn't made it. She just she just can't can't really rely on her in terms of delivering our full potential. So, um, again, toy calls. And there's a lot of tight calls in the squad, and um, just people disappointed. And you know, I believe there was there was a lot of emotion there yesterday when the calls were made out in UCD. And um, Leanne, yeah, just just hopefully, you know, she's quite young. There will be other opportunities. There will be other or, uh, other tournaments in the future. That she'll be back a full settle for. She's a player who deserves a break at some point or another. Uh, John, just in terms of who might start, and I know we're sort of forward, forwarding on a little bit, but Leanne Kiernan, um, obviously with the start of the Zambia game, has started plenty of games uh, previously. Does this move Amber Barrett from a position of where we were debating a couple of weeks ago as to whether she's going to be in the squad? Does this move her into the first eleven? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I think, I think even Amber was engaged in that debate herself, given her lack of club action in Germany, but she's moved on now to Belgium. 
So she's really put herself in the frame, you know, given the Zambia contribution last week. Like she already had credit in the bank, you know, with Hampton Park, but she's, I think she's in a great position now, you know, for Australia. Um, you know, there's a few other contenders there, but Amber has always delivered. You know, she's she's been around a long time. Different managers, Vera Bell, Colin Bell, um, never really never really let us down. Um, so she's had to had to see off the competition because it was coming from every angle. Um, but last week when she was needed, you know, she produced the goods. So, um, I think she's she's in a she's in a great position. You know, as it stands to to to, to lead that forward line. Some of the other absentees, Jamie Finn uh, being being one of them, um, John, that seems to be uh, another relative shock given her inclusion, certainly for, for many of the games in the qualification. Um, and, and like she started the campaign against Sweden, as, as you reported yourself, and, and finished it against Scotland. And you also mentioned her versatility as well. And, and maybe that's another reason why she is in a, an unexpected absence, I guess. Yeah, she's the big one, I think, really. Um, now, like, when you look back, like, the two home base players who would have been sort of favourites of Vera would have been Anya Gorman and, and Jamie. And what they had in common was both of them worked as personal, personal fitness trainers, you know, in their full time jobs. So they had a level of stamina and endurance that really Vera relied on. And she she was really the one of the go to players in the campaign. Now towards the latter stage she would have drifted a bit, but she was to the point I think where they left her out, I think, of the game against Georgia because of fear and suspension. She was that important. Um but suppose she's been a bit of a victim of the influx of new players. Um she sort of was on the margins, but I did not expect her really to be cut from twenty three because She's got a great engine. She can play as a holding midfielder. She can play right wing back. Um, but you know they've just gone for different players uh, in that position, um, which has been quite a surprise. And and I, I understand she was she was quite distraught yesterday when it was informed. Yeah, when we look at the like Jamie Finn, Harriet Scott, and we believe uh, there'll be a, a keeper added to that three. That's possibly going to make up the extra three, and uh, we could debate the uh, merits or demerits of having four keepers in that uh, extended squad. But uh, regardless, like there's a few sort of 50-50 calls in terms of some of the names that we expect now to be included. Um, Kira Grant possibly might be one of those that will benefit from the Mannion exclusion. Ruisha Littlejohn was somebody who, despite being so dependable over the last couple of years, was maybe in that debate as well. Who do you think, who do you place in the uh, waking up this morning in the I can't believe I'm in category? Yeah, I think both of those, Kira and and Rusher, I think are okay. Same with Lily Ag. Um, so they were players, Rusha and Lily Ag, who would have had injuries towards the end of the latter stage of the season, but they're in. Um, and the way Vera plays is basically with a back five and sort of two two screeners in front of them, and they would be major contenders to sit in that role. Kira Grant, likewise. Um, she can she can play there, and she's been a loyal servant. She's always turned up. She hasn't been quite, you know, prominent in terms of playing minutes, but has always been there. And she's an option. Um, so I'd say there's a few of them, you know, who are breathing a sigh of relief that they probably thought they were borderline, um, but have got in. Um, I suppose on the you know we're talking a lot about the ones who have been left out, but I believe one of the winners in this is Izzy Atkinson. Um, who came in last week in place of um, Megan Campbell. 
Uh, you heard that story about Megan Campbell relinquishing her room in UCD mm. uh, for Izzy to come in, who wouldn't have been in the initial squad, but she's in, taking her chance. And I know Vera sort of judges on what she sees before her eyes and uh, has has given Izzy the nod. So, you know, fair play to her. That's that's that's, that's really a, a seismic sort of elevation from the margins. Another one of the winners, and you've mentioned her already, is, is Abby Larkin, 18 years of age. What like what an achievement this is. Everyone in Ringsend and Shelburne will be uh, buzzing for her. And I remember reading an interview with, with her parents, Ethel and Robert, recently, where she where they spoke about having to sign her out of school You know, when she made a full international debut at 16. Um, so for people like Abby today, I mean, this is just a career highlight, isn't it? An, an extraordinary achievement, and great to see a home-based player as well being included. Yeah, like when you look, she's she's she sort of shaded players who were based in in England, you know, and um, I don't think we'll see much of, you know, I don't think she'll be here much longer, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's plenty of clubs that are in for her at the moment, so with the transfer window opening, I think Abby will be on the move. Um, but she has that, she has that pace, you know, that that, that can stretch defenses. Um, so maybe not as a starter, but someone who can come on and give different options and be versatile. Um, so uh, yeah, again, you talk about the winner, the winner category. Um, Abby's in there, and uh, deservedly so. What was the crack in Knocknahini last night? In, uh, in with Denise, yeah, yeah. It was brilliant, yeah, absolutely brilliant, yeah, yeah. Myself and Dylan from the Echo uh, went up Knocknahini to see the farewell, and you know, at a time of football, I suppose it's being dragged through the mud in terms of sports washing and you know all the things that are going on. It would really warm your heart to what you saw last night. She's the ultimate sort of working class hero who sort of come really from the school of hard knocks and the the, the send off she got was incredible. Um, you had a you had a, a huge turnout, and as you know, some of her family said like Denise has never forgotten where she came from, and uh, you know we know about Roy Keane's Mayfield's roots, but Denise equally in the north of Cork is the uh, is the female equivalent, and. Um, She's one of the last players into the into the camp due to her commitments in, in you know in North Carolina Courage where she's captain, um. But she's going to be a big big player for us, and uh, it's probably long overdue that she's playing on this stage because she really is you know or I suppose along with Katie she is our our world class player. So um, it's great to see her, and um, she was in great form. I should mention, I mentioned uh, Shelburne, of course, uh, for Abby Larkin's origins. She is, of course, with Shamrock Rovers now, so I'd be killed if I didn't mention them as well. Um, Adrian pushed, uh, touched on it there, John, the, the, the goalkeeper situation. like So three goalkeepers expected to be included, and then one further um, as one of these three additional non-playing members. Uh, was this expected that, that Vera might opt for four keepers, essentially? Yeah, that, I think that was the end. That was from the sound boys last week. I think the goalkeeping coach, um, uh, Jan, I think he likes to work with four, four goalkeepers. Right. Um, so, you know, like three stamp, we call them standby players. They're not really like the, they're only coming in in terms of a sort of a medical emergency. So they're really training players. Um, seems a bit odd to me now, I have to say. I had four goalkeepers, you know, whatever about losing one goalkeeper to a red card or an injury, you're not going to need two, you know, three more. Um, so quite, I think I think it's quite a strange move, but yeah, that that's what they'd seem to have gone for. And uh, I think Sophie Whitehouse might be the you know the, the fourth one there. So, um, but I think it's more given the sort of the long lead in what you have. It's more in terms of preparation than you know training games. 
Uh, briefly, John, before we let you go, we should mention that, that just we mentioned it before you came on, but Dan McDonnell writing in the Irish Independent this morning um, about Stephen Kenny saying he will get the chance to bring the Republic of Ireland into September's crunch qualifiers against uh, the French and the Dutch. So, of course, there was that regular monthly meeting of the FAI board uh, that took place last night. Um, and of course his future was one of the topics on the agenda but uh, this perhaps no surprise that, that Stephen Kenny will get the chance but I guess it puts puts his mind at ease Yeah I, I, I was on different topics last night but I heard the, the board meeting dragged on quite long um, but not a surprise um, I think had Gibraltar maybe gone a bit sour we could be looking at a different conversation mm-hmm. this week yeah that seems to be the case it's going to roll on to September, uh, maybe with some contingency in place, um, should the worst happen there. So really not a surprise. Yeah, absolutely. John, great stuff as always. Thanks for hopping on. Thank you. Great stuff. John Fallon there of the Irish Examiner at 8.32 approaching here on Wednesday morning's OTBAM. We did, of course, have Tommy Rooney's controversial football power rankings yesterday. He had Monaghan at ninth, Adrian, in an eight-horse race. Only Monaghan could... You know my feelings on this. What's the feelings? I agree with him. Like, um, how can you be ninth and there's only eight teams left? Who did, who was the one that's not the eight that was ahead of him? Ahead of him, Galway, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, Galway were dropped down four places. But I mean, that, that, I, that, no, can, I can, be, I, that can be true. To be, to be fair, the only team I said Monaghan should have been ahead of that they were behind was Cork because I think Monaghan yeah. have more in the bank than, than yeah. Cork do. But but the, the one thing the that's consistent about the power rankings is that they Piss like, people he, he doesn't well no yes but uh, he doesn't tend to. It tends to take a little bit to move him, right? Like it doesn't. He's not hugely yeah. reactionary week on week. Like it takes ten to, yeah. to shift him off his viewpoint. And but he's like, very thoughtful. Monaghan. I was having this conversation with somebody from Cavan. <laughs> we were, oh, we were like-minded souls <laughs> on Sunday night. We played uh, nine or ten holes of golf on Sunday evening. Jane. It was a blissful way to round off the weekend. Lovely. But um, he was less. Of the uh, strong opinion that I am, just I just think Monaghan. You know that I feel this way. They just constantly. Um, and get, I'm not, saying this, I'm not saying this in a in a, in a positive <laughs> sense necessarily because it's just always the case. But like they're just they cling on by their fingers, by the 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 skin of the skin of their teeth. Yeah. And I know you're looking at that like a positive. There's a, no, there's a skill to that. I know. I know that's what you're saying. And I kind of feel like, you know, there's no. Um, I as a Monaghan supporter. I think he was making the point as a modern supporter you're getting unbelievable value bang you your get butt. tortured as well incredible yeah. like and and I can understand the point why the point that I'm making would be really annoying to you I would get that totally yeah. but I just feel that they're hanging on and hanging on and hanging on and hanging on and like at some point or another the hanging on has to stop does it though but you get experience at the hanging yeah, on. I, I, I you build up the the, uh, the scar tissue from the, hanging the, on. The, the, you you are right in the conversation because they've done it for ten years. Is it in Division One? Yeah. And like the results well, have gone away. If Westmead clung on in Division One for ten years, correct. You'd be pretty happy. Correct. Correct. But then, as a neutral observ- observer from Stokes Kennedy Crowley, I would have somebody else to say, "Do you really deserve to be there?" Sorry, what was the Cavan person's? Uh, they were reluctantly sort of saying that. You know, look at they've they've done it. They've even if this ridiculous set of results that had to go their way went their way in the final day, that's 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 the way the cookie crumbles. So. Yeah, but I just think that you make your own luck. Are they in the top eight in the country? Of course they are. They have been consistent. Sorry, they've been in the top six in the country in the so league sense for the you'd last you'd ten you'd years. So you take Cork out and and put them in. Yeah, that's the t- that's the only. So you're, are I you saying made. they're eighth? I, I would have had them eighth in the power rankings. Yeah. No, I think if they beat Armagh the weekend. We can oh, well, have, I, we think, can have a I, I think I think that that at that point they would have to push the, the top four. 
top four. Well, they're into the semi-finals then. But I, get, I know, I get but that. they won't go into. They won't go from nine to fourth. No, Tommy will certainly wouldn't put them ninth to fourth. Tommy will probably they'll probably beat Armagh at the weekend, and he's, Tommy will put them down to eleventh. He's a bit like Seb Blatter, you know the way like the, the FIFA FIFA rankings. Yeah, they don't just because one team beats another doesn't mean you go ahead of them. No, of course you get extra. Little, I'm sure there's some. I'm sure he's got an exact science Shane behind the scenes. Mm, possibly. There was one very good comment in earlier on, by the way, I should mention it, about uh, Harry Kane that we were talking about. Aina Carroll, good morning to you, Aina, on YouTube. We were talking about Harry Kane and you know whether he goes to Bayern Munich or wherever he goes. Highest paid player at Spurs is uh, like saying it's the biggest car park in Leitrim. <laughs> <laughs> that's good, though. That's yeah. comment of the morning there. Uh, that's good. He's not wrong. Uh, and uh, someone Bit says, points, well, like. it's a fair point. Uh, Shane, is, ever, is there ever a show or even an hour in OTB you don't mention the Farney Army? Lol. No, there isn't. Uh, it is time. I won't mention them here for the hurling power rankings. You might do. Some of these critics, these pundits. I absolutely adore them, lads. I have unbelievable time for them, but they're, they're a great bunch, but it's not acceptable. They'd like to play the hard man when, when they're on it. It's not very pleasant when you're trying to manage a team. All you're looking for is a bit of civility and a bit of decency, but they just dismiss you like, like you, you know, you have nothing to do with the bloody occasion. Will O'Callaghan, come in. Good morning. Morning, lads. I have to say, when I hear Adrian go, just because you beat a team, you don't go above them in the power rankings, I'm there going, <laughs> slight spoiler, that's exactly what's going to happen this morning. <laughs> well, what, like, what other way is there to do it? Like, do you, do, are you, are yourself and Tommy different in your approach? I know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you don't uh, reveal each other's reveal the kimono. Skill. Yeah, you can't, you can't, like, you got to keep your own, uh, I guess, logic to yourself in case it's it's on back out. your kimono there will is what what Shane is yeah, like, yeah. How, do you, how do you work it out Look, i don't think the logic can be as simple as a team has a reactionary result against another team and then you push them above them but i think when you get to this point in the championship championship results and championship performances weigh an awful lot when it comes to how you're going to change the power rankings around you'll see in a minute that there's very few changes in fact just one on the hurling power rankings since we spoke last friday week but then we've only had two games since so therefore we haven't had a huge amount of games to actually determine changes on the ladder and i think it actually speaks to the consistency of the power rankings up until now is that we're looking at a case where we pretty much had the top four or five teams in the country in a reasonable position, you can argue maybe a place here or there where the top six were within one point of each other when they met in championships so far this season. And now we have a very clear top four, which is exactly the same top four as this time last year, because for the first time in nearly a decade, we've got a repeat of last year's uh, All-Ireland semi-finals. Mm. I'd forgotten about that, yeah. Mm. That's, like, what, what does that say about the championship at the moment as well? Like, It felt wide open heading into this year, and certainly the Munster Championship was very, very open, but... The fact that we're left with plus a change, I mean, would you have called that at the start of the year? Um, I think you would have thought the four teams who were in the semi-finals would definitely have been in contention to get here. Like yeah. everyone would expect Limerick to be, at the time, overwhelming favourites, maybe less overwhelmingly so now at this point. And again, they have to navigate a major change to their team, albeit they were able to sign post at a couple of weeks out before the semi-finals with their captain Declan Hannan not being available for the semi-final next week. And, you know, Galway showed a huge uh, show of grit at the weekend on the back of conceding that late goal in the Leinster final, where it looked like their path to an All-Ireland final was going to become incredibly difficult uh, to have to get through Tipperary 
Kerry and Limerick. And now Galway are coming in with a little bit of momentum into that game against Limerick, a team who they've given plenty of problems to before, a team they match up well against physically, and a Limerick team who could well be without, will, will definitely be without Declan Hannan, could be without Keane Lynch, and without Gerard Hegarty being informed. So Limerick have found the answers when people have asked over the last four or five years. But uh, this Galway team off the back of the weekend looked like they could cause them a few problems in the semi finals. Give or take, like a Tipperary result against Galway like you could that's the problem with the hurling championship it's the problem with hurling that it's actually quite easy to predict the final four yeah well, I don't know. If you were to go back a while back, you would have thought the Tipperary were going to be in a Munster final, a dead rubber against Waterford in their last group game. I think you would have thought they're now getting ready to play against Clare. That result has proved to be quite costly for Tipperary so in the end. So you can say, from this five, will come four. Yeah, I think so. And I think Cork probably aren't too far off um, in sixth place as well. But I think after that, it was fairly clear that the other teams weren't going to be in contention. We probably saw that in the Dublin game against Clare, where Dublin had enough for Carlo the week before in the preliminary quarterfinal. But then when they come up against a Clare team who hurled a little bit erratically on Saturday afternoon, they'll be maybe a little bit disappointed about some aspects of their performance, particularly, again, uh, the wides, which have been racking up for Clare this season. But when David Fitzgerald ran through the middle of that Dublin team, they caused untold problems for Dublin uh, banged in three goals and two points just before half time were nine points up at the break and you just felt like there was only one winner from there and Clare were incredibly comfortable in the second half Tony Kelly getting three four from play Mark Rogers stepping over onto the freeze with Aidan McCarthy not been there from an attacking point of view I think Clare would be really happy the problem that Clare will probably have on the weekend just gone by were the issues down the centre of their defence and John Conlon still has to go through the return to play protocols over the next couple of weeks to see if he's available to play at number six he was a huge loss uh, when Clare suffered that 14 point defeat to Kilkenny in the semi-finals last year and their captain Conor Cleary at this point has to be a major doubt popped his shoulder a few weeks back apparently it was up until the Thursday of the Munster final before they made a decision that he would be unable to play it would be huge if they could get him back but it has looked like there's been a gap down the middle of that Clare team um, which Kilkenny would be absolutely licking their lips about exploiting potentially in a semi-final again albeit the injury news it seems this morning in the newspaper is very much mixed uh, for Kilkenny Mikey Carey won't be available for the semi-final looks like Mossy Keown who would have been a natural to put in around the square could well miss as well Uh, but Adrian Mullen who I believe had a small operation on his thumb after the Wexford game, is now in contention to come back in for that semi-final against Clare. And if they have Adrian Mullen back and firing ahead of that, it's a huge boost for the Leinster champions, who I'm sure with their injury profile that they've had, will have enjoyed having a three-week break before playing in the semi-finals. Just to remind the uh, fans of the power rankings, uh, 18 down to 7. We have Kildare 18, Meath 17, down at 16. It's Kerry at 15, Leash 14, your own Offaly at 13, Will Carlo 12, Westmeath at 11 and then entering the top 10 we have Antrim at 10 Wexford 9 Waterford at 8 Dublin at 7 do you want to talk us through uh, 6 late, to 1 as stages, I was going to say late stages Shane when it comes to the teams who were there from 7 back so they haven't played uh, since we spoke yeah. last the only two teams that were involved were Carlo and Offaly the Joe McDonough Cup finalists and both of them as expected lost their preliminary quarterfinals Carlo were that bit closer to Dublin while uh, Tipperary ran right against Offaly but I don't think it's a reason to drop either of them the fact they lost a preliminary quarterfinal Protocol wise top 6 do you want to talk us through it? 
Yeah, well, again, look, some of these teams are out of championship uh, before we get to the top six. I still think that uh, Cork are the next closest outside the teams who played in the quarterfinals. Uh, were perhaps unlucky to be knocked out in Munster, but uh, didn't qualify. Uh, then the switch you've got is Tipperary and Galway. So Galway go into the top four, uh, somewhat on the back of that win at the weekend against Tipperary. Also, the fact that they're into the All-Ireland semi-finals. Uh, some Galway supporters weren't happy when they started the year in sixth, but they have risen up two places on the back of their championship performances after the league. And Tipperary have disappointed. It has been a real dud end to the summer after showing uh, so much promise to go and win in Clare in their first game in Munster, to have got a draw against Limerick. You're thinking this Tipperary team is ready to fire in the latter stages of the championship. So much firepower as we saw in the preliminary quarterfinal where they banged in seven goals. And then their full forward line is held scoreless by Galway at the weekend just gone by and where Seamus Callan and Mark Keogh came off at half time so a lot of that comes down to the way that Galway hurled and Galway made themselves very difficult to break down particularly uh, dropping Carl Mannion back was a very good decision by Henry Shefflin he got on 27 possessions during the game made five interceptions and the ball that he was playing out from generally around the half back line for Galway led directly to one goal and five in scores for them so as much as Conor Whelan gets a huge amount of credit for his scoring at the other end uh, Carl Mannion was an incredibly good distributor and a really good reader of the game. The question about Cahill Mannion now is whether he ends up playing in that position against Limerick or does he play in a more advanced role where last year he caused some issues for Limerick once they pushed him up. So that's a decision that they have to make but they'll be delighted Galway as well that they've got Conor Whelan in the form he is right now. Seven goals and 15 from play so far this summer and he ran riot around some really good defenders at the weekend. Not too many people will give Cahill Barrett the run around albeit Cahill Barrett was coming back in a little bit cold and I don't think he would have played if Craig Morgan hadn't picked up a hamstring injury against Offaly but there were some very encouraging signs from Galway a Galway team who had to be carrying a certain amount of psychological pain from the nature of the Leinster final and the mm. scores they conceded as well. Skell was a, a happy man on the Hurling pod. It turns out there's no love lost between Galway and Tipwell. No, he said he was like a Cheshire cat when he was leaving the Gaelic grounds at the weekend. Such was his happiness because he admitted he kind of felt the heat. I don't think he expected that he was going to be referenced at least twice in national newspapers yesterday. Um, by his own admission, he has said probably crazier things on the pod during the year. And yet this is the one that goes wild. So I think the thing he enjoyed most was the All-Ireland minor winning manager, James Woodlock, the former Tipperary player last week, who referred to the podcast as, I was listening to James Skell's podcast and I heard what he had to say about hating Tipperary. Per- so, Will, your ego, I mean, come oh, on. Oh, look, for one week only, we have changed the title to the James Scale podcast. We will change <laughs> it back next week. But, um, yeah, look, again, he got to enjoy it. In fairness to him, he called it. He said that Galway were going to be up uh, for the fight when it came to the game at the weekend. And that was a big part for, I think, for Tipperary fans, that the most, is one of the most disappointing things, is that they lost so many of the 50-50 battles. They poked so much ball in uh, to that Galway half-back line, who were big men that came out with the ball um, an incredible amount of times during the game. It was just such a flat performance from Tipperary, which is a huge disappointment because there were all the indications early in the year. And I still think the 2023 team has made a lot of progress compared to where they were in 2022. In championship, it has not related into the results that they would have expected. I think this Tipperary team would have been targeting, at minimum earlier this year, a place in the All-Ireland semi-finals. Fourth shouldn't beat first in the power rankings, if they do, because that's all the comfort you're giving us. Like, a bit like the last <clears> time we were on, Will, the only angle we could get was, if this thing happens, will you do this thing? 
Um, if fourth beat first, are they uh, swapping? No, I mean, they won't swap, uh, but will you put... I don't think they'll, where, where? I they'll swap, but it'd be a sensational result if Goa were to beat Limerick in the semi-final. Despite me giving all the reasons that Goa should have you know, loads of optimism ahead of the game on Saturday week, at the same time, you would still think that this Limerick team have maybe got that extra gear that they can bring when it comes to the semi-final. Remember this Limerick team, for all of the question marks that maybe have been there, that have been there in recent seasons, they've still got themselves into that Munster final on the last day, beating Clare in the Munster final to retain their title for the fifth year in a row. They go into the semi-final, even with question marks about players who are missing. The fact they won't have Sean Finn, they won't have Declan Hannan, they might not have Keane Lynch for that game. And still somehow this Limerick team tend to find the answers when it comes to big matches. So mm. respectfully, they're still at number one, despite the fact that so many people were trying to get ah, them off top spot. No and to. saying, hypotheticals last time we spoke, if Clare had won, would Clare have gone ahead of Limerick? And me thinking, yeah, maybe they would if they were Munster champions. But, and it's a, it's, um, a, it's a crazy if as well this weekend. I mean, maybe not a crazy if, but an unlikely if. Yeah, I think it is an unlikely one for that. I think Galway will come in as underdogs, but probably happy enough uh, to come in under the radar coming into that game against Limerick. And for the other one, Clare just really have to go into that semi-final and do what they didn't do last year, which was perform to the level that we'd seen earlier in the summer. So we will see if maybe for Clare... The fact that there wasn't a flatness about the performance against Dublin will be a big hope for them. But the only issue is the amount of injuries that they've picked up. And they'll be really hoping that uh, they clear up between now and then. Again, I'm not sure if Conor Cleary is going to be fit. I think John Conlon probably will come through, despite reports that he had taken a very heavy knock to the head. It didn't look that bad when he was coming off, but maybe it was a little bit worse than we had thought. And then there's a few other uh, kind of lower level injuries uh, up further in the team as well like Shane O'Donnell they need them all available if they're going to beat Kilkenny this time around because Kilkenny did a real number on them last season and maybe that's a case of Kilkenny are a bad matchup for Clare as well Kilkenny have definitely been the team that people have been sleeping on throughout the year there's this kind of feeling that ah are Kilkenny really that good (laughs) and yet here Kilkenny as Leinster champions getting ready for a semi-final again and probably feeling that they can go out and beat Clare for the second season in a row and get back to an All-Ireland final so they're probably happy enough that everyone else is sleeping on them. Absolutely. Well, listen, we'll, uh, we'll reassess the power rankings after those two semi-finals. So Saturday, the 8th of July, we've got Limerick against Galway at Croke Park from 6pm. The following day, Sunday 9th, 4 o'clock throw-in for Kilkenny against Clare. Will, brilliant stuff. Thanks a million. Thanks, lads. Talk to you soon. That is the latest hurling power rankings. I absolutely adore them, lads. I have unbelievable time for them, but they're, they're a great bunch, but it's not acceptable. Yeah, 8.48am on this Wednesday morning's OTBAM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back in Neon Night Edition. Available now. It's the sports breakfast show from off the ball. Just time to mention as well. Kilkenny against Galway, but not as you know it. The Hurling Pod Live is off to the Borgosh Energy Theatre in Dublin this July and you are invited. It, uh, we will be joined on stage by the co-hosts James Scahill and Paul Murphy. It isn't the James Scahill podcast, but... Uh, mm. Of course, Will O'Callaghan's ego took a hit when that was referred, uh, as well as special guest Joe Canning, a uh, massive guest as well, with more hurling legends to be announced very soon as we debate the 2023 season and, of course, preview the All-Ireland Hurling Final. It's the 20th of July at the Board Gosh Energy Theatre. It's an exclusive off-air event. Tickets are limited, so don't delay. Go to offtheball.com forward slash events. All ticket proceeds will go to the Dylan Quirk Foundation and Focus Ireland. Get your tickets now and help support a great cause. Board Gosh Energy, proud sponsors of the All-Ireland Senior Hurling Championship. Here are some highlights coming up on the OTB Podcast Network across today. We have got the aforementioned Hurling Pod. We've got Matt Slater and Football Daily. After the break, we'll have Keith Woods. You had to be there. You're so unexpected. It's one of those you had to be there moments. You had to be there. It subsequently genuinely did change everything about my life. I had to be there. 
That is the latest episode of You Had to Be There, and delighted to welcome for this one Keith Wood. Keith, good morning. Good morning, Shane. How are you? Hi, Adrian. Long, Long time Keith. no see. Long time no see. <laughs> Romance is back. Um, Keith, this is a this is a difficult slot for a lot of our guests because they have to sit down and rack their brains and leave some some things out, some performances that they saw in person uh, out that they perhaps feel a little bit uh, bad bad because of. So, has this been a tough enough? process for you to, to narrow it down to five no it hasn't because i uh, i just took it as an opportunity to reminisce on times past and um it's kind of nice to think of things that you haven't thought about for a while and i also stuck to rugby um i didn't try and um go through some of the other sporting uh, events that i'd been to and we could do that some other time if we needed to if we needed to fill a half an hour but um no, I, I had a bit of a giggle with it and I kind of used it to uh, think of some of my favourite players and to think think of certain things that were, that kind of stuck out for their difference as opposed to being the best performance of a, of a, of a player for, for a whole match. Though I do have a bit of that in there as well. Mm. There were kind of moments in time too that seemed to just strike a chord with me. So I kind of shot from the hip with them when I was chatting to, to Colm yesterday just to see which ones we'd go and it, so no thoughts got into this mm. the, well, you, well you, strike me, you strike me as someone who'd have a, a fairly intriguing non-rugby uh, you had to be there as well maybe some player uh, goodness thrown in there so we'll, we'll maybe not spoil that one because we, we, we should do of, that a bit of Claire goodness of course um, there's also a little bit of I just heard the plug for the F1 uh, podcast there's a little bit of that oh too. lovely entertaining but um, oh you've got his interest now Keith yeah, yeah, yeah. we were only we were only trucking along before you said that That's uh, <laughs> we'll talk yeah. about that for half an hour um, you're starting so we'll maybe go in uh, in order of the earliest first so this is a performance from uh, Harlequin's flanker uh, the great French flanker as well Laurent Caban that you've picked yeah, and I think it's it's worth kind of remembering um, some of the stuff of Laurent. Laurent had, had been in a car crash uh, when he was younger and spent a period of time in a wheelchair. Six foot two, six foot three uh, flanker for France when everybody was, was getting huge and big. Uh, he was maybe 13 and a half stone. Uh, huge scars down his arm and his leg from, from the crash. Um Actually, I remember uh, after about six weeks, he got man of the match in five of the, f- of the first six matches. He was truly extraordinary uh, for Quinns. And Dick Best, our coach at the time, said, listen, Naran, you're, you're too thin, too skinny. You really need to be doing weights. And uh, Caban, in the middle of the meeting with the cigarette, uh, said, well, I, I don't do the weights. So he said, well, you have to do weights now. So he trained and did weights for the week. And having been man of the match for, for five of the first six, he just walked around the field on the uh, on the seventh game. And uh, Bestie, after the game, said, Caban, what the hell are you doing? He said, I told you, I don't do the weights. And he took another drag from his bag. But he best, I mentioned two other guys in, 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 in this list, but uh, one of the top three rugby players I ever played with. I just, he had an ability to make the sort of um, time go slow and uh, his ability to do different things. He was always wherever the ball was, you know. He was fit, but in that sort of French way of doing things. But we we played a game against Oral, who were pretty much gone at this stage. They got um, they got relegated down all the, all the lists soon after. And we beat them, I think, by 60-odd points. 
Yeah, 89, 89 points to 18, I think this was. In the, 89 in the points to 18, there you go. Um, that's a kind of frightening score when you think <laughs> of And um, now we had, I think we had eight international or nine international captains in that team that we had at Quinn's. Yet he was the guy who seemed to stand out for me always. Um, but he ran. I can't explain this properly, and that's not great for radio, but we'll give it a go. <laughs> um, in around the halfway, he ran... He was accelerating towards a pass and he then stepped away before he got the pass. But he accelerated his hands towards the ball as he was going in the opposite direction. And it looked so wrong (laughs) and everybody stopped. And I was standing behind him and I stopped and he jogged in from the halfway to score with like he didn't sprint in or nothing. It was just absolutely time free. It was just a moment in time for that one player. He had three or four others the same day. He had won against Bourguin in a European Cup match where he picked the ball up from behind his back uh, and passed it around his, his stomach as you do kind of <laughs> messing to score a try. And again, everybody kind of got out of his way. But it was just one of those rare things where you're standing and you're looking at somebody and they're saying, oh my God, he's truly incredible. And then, of course, you also realize you, you don't have that skill. You can't do that thing, you know. And it's a, a kind of um, half upsetting and half exhilarating uh, element to see it. But one of the absolute great guys, great players, um, and someone I haven't seen for a while, actually. So I need to, he's from saint jean de um in, in the Pyrenees, but uh, a class, class player. You weren't long um, out of Gary Owen, Keith. You were still probably in your formative years at that point, if I'm right, 23, 24. Uh, and I know you've said that, like, looking at that piece of skill, you're not saying, oh, cool, I can do that. But at the same time, like, you're describing a lot of play that you would have become known for um, across your career in terms of that loose play. Is is a too stretch, too far stretch to say that you were you were inspired by that or that I played a part in some of your play down the track? Um, I look at the, the, when I joined Quinn's, I joined in sort of February, March 96. Uh, I trained for three months on my own with a fitness guy. Um, I was recuperating from surgery, from a, a very large surgery. But when we started training, it was the first time that um, you were training full time. The game was professional. And Dick Best had been an assistant lines coach. Andy Keast became the technical skills advisor for the Lions in 97. Um, and you pretty much would like to rebuild how to play rugby. And um, technical skills, best he had in, uh, in, in spades. He was, he was pretty phenomenal at it. Um, Andy Keast was the first real time for pure video analysis uh, for me. Um, we went through every Monday for an hour and a half. We had a scrap for an hour and a half. Um, uh, he said, I want you to do this. And I said, no, you have to justify why you want me to do it. Like, And I was fighting my corner. And I was equally trying to remember how to play and to learn new ways of playing. And then you're playing with, with guys. Will Carling was in the centre. Um, David Pears, who got a couple of caps for England about half, was injury-prone beleaguered player was phenomenal and but some of the skill levels of some of the players were just were were fantastic and watching what Caban would do without even thinking about I mean I played against him in a game of squash I know it's totally irrelevant I played against him in a game of squash I was a crap squash player but every time he hit the ball it just seemed to roll down the wall he seemed to be able to keep 
kill everything. He could do anything, whatever he kind of wanted to do it, and he did it all in the most relaxed manner. One of those annoying people that's just good at everything they put their put their hand to. Yeah, it, it was extraordinary, truly extraordinary. It, there's a, that, that we had that image up on screen there of of Lauren Caban in that famous iconic Quinn's jersey with the massive white collar. You've got the gum shield coming out of his mouth as well. He just oozes French. It wasn't so much a jersey as a curtain. <laughs> it's a curtain. It is like, and it's got the colours as well. Your your granny's curtain, but it's um, yeah, they, those jerseys didn't shrink either. Um, I mean, they they could have been made into a quilt afterwards, and they were quilted. They were built in squares, so it's oh. quite something. Yeah, it's just there was obviously no science put behind the jerseys back then in terms of sweat technology. Uh, but yeah, that's an amazing pick, and even the fact, as you say, uh, Woody as well, that he was in that car accident in 1990, goes on, and even the following year, plays in the World Cup in 91, plays again in the World Cup in 95 when, when France finished finish third. So uh, an incredible career. A great career, 45 tests, I think, I um, and I didn't look at the stats, but that was something I had in my head, maybe I'm making that up, but he... Um, he was also involved, and one of the kind of joys for it, and I would recommend to 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 listeners, is to view the try from the other side of the world, which was in was that ninety four ninety five where where they started from behind their uh, the goal line France against New Zealand. It is a truly truly extraordinary um, try. He was in that I think a couple of times. So um, yeah, it was kind of a joy to be able to play with that guy. I have to say. Privilege. Really got around just looking at the different clubs he played at as well. Section Paloas, Racing Club uh, as well, Western Province in South Africa, Harlequin as well. So, uh, one of those players that just seemed to make an impact wherever he played. He, he, he Part of his recuperation um, to go back to play international rugby was he played in the centre for Racing. That was part of his recuperation. I love that. <laughs> nice, relaxing uh, position. Yeah, just, just, just sit in the centre there and recuperate. He's just, yeah, it's an extraordinary, I think it's 49 caps for France, two tries scored from 87 to 97, according to the, the, the stats I have in front of me, and played five, uh, six times at the Five Nations as well, uh, between 91 and 96, uh, winning team, of course, in 1993. So, Laurent Caban, uh, brilliant career, and uh, that's the game we're, we're mentioning this morning, Harlequins against Oral in 1996. Your second pick then, Keith, uh, for going in order, was in 1999-2000, that season. Uh, this is Mick Galway. Captaincy, of course, from Munster against Saracens, and the, and the game in particular you've picked is the 35 points to 34 win in the Heineken Cup. It's uh, November 1999, I think it is. 1999, um, and I wanted to pick this just for pure captaincy, actually. Yeah. And um, we had, uh, I think Munster were just beginning to change how they were viewing um, some of these games and these matches. Um, Reminded of this fact during the week, I had a chat with Deck and Kidney during the week. Um, and we we're just kind of chatting through different things, but uh, the attitude had started to change. You're suddenly beginning to win some games, um, but to be playing Saris in Thomond, um, I don't know if this is entirely true, and my memory could be failing me on it, but I think after this match was the first time that Stand Up and Fight was sung by Brian O'Brien in the changing room. Right. Um, I, I believe that to be to be the case. I'm not 100% certain on that. Um, but we it was a great game, like a really great game. Saris had a, had a cracking team. And um, it, was, it was a huge part of the monster journey that was, that was required was to get these big wins against English teams. And... Um, and you're at home and you don't want to lose and everything's going well and 
we're, we're there or thereabouts, but it's so tight. Oh, the game is tight all the way, and I make a stupid mistake. Um, I come out of the line to to kind of smash somebody, and the ball's pass back inside, I think, to Mark Mapletoft, and they score under the post. And it's it's a, stu- it's a stupid try. It's one out of fatigue um, and thinking that you can maybe have an impact, and this is the opportunity rather than being fully coordinated. And it was at the sort of the start of the, the big defensive line, so that's when we were making those mistakes all the time, really, if we're honest. Mm-hmm. But I remember jogging back behind the the post and I said, Jesus Christ, this is entirely my fault. And um, there's three minutes to go in the game. And um, we've now gone um, six points behind. And, uh, you know, we're dead and buried pretty much. And Mick Galway, just, I remember it as clearly as if it was yesterday. He called everybody in and he said, right, forget about that. That's gone. Um this is what's going to happen. Um, we're going to kick off. Uh, Roger's going to put um, uh, is going to put the ball up into the air. We're going to catch it. Langford, you have to get the ball back, and we hold on to it until we get a penalty. Then we kick into touch, and we hold on to it until we get another penalty, and we kick it to five meters out, and then we're going to score from the resulting ball. And it was as if it was he'd seen it before, you know, and every single part of it every single part of it happened. So there was maybe 30 or 40 things had to happen and every single one of them happened. And as each one happened, as as, as we went up, we said Langford or maybe um, could have been uh, Eddie Halvey, whichever one went up to get the ball. When that happened, a little bit more belief grew to what Golov had said was going to actually happen. So we got the ball, Raj kicked it into touch, we threw it into the line out. We won it. As in every step happened, you could just see the belief rising and rising and rising. Um, and we got down to five yards from the line. And um, we had, uh, I can't remember where we threw the ball into the line out. But anyway, from the en- ensuing one, we, we burrowed over for, for a try. And You burrowed back- over, didn't you? What? You burrowed over. I went over, yeah. <laughs> and... Um, uh, uh, Nick Walsh, who used to be my scrum half the previous year in Quinns, was now the scrum half, uh, sub scrum half from um, from Saris, and I saw him, and um, I trained against him an awful lot, and I knew that uh, a meter from the line, I was very, I was good for that one meter anyway. So, um, and I went back, and Raj had to kick the kick, and he, as it turned out, he didn't have to kick the kick, mm. um, but he kicked it, and it brushed in off the post and in, and. To absolutely delirious um, scenes and part of that huge emotional uh, wave that seemed to start with Monster. So I, I can remember that as, as clearly as clear. I mean, it was, and for me, uh, and I always say this, that one of the things for captaincy is that you, you pick it up from other people and you pick up whatever piece that you, you want to have and you try and use whatever is appropriate at any moment in time. But for that time and in that moment in time, the clarity of of thought for for Mick Galway was it was perfect, and it, for, in my mind, it was it was under fatigue. Um, with the last couple of minutes of a game, that was per- perfect captaincy. 
you're underplaying your own role in that because you throw that ball to the line out the half a mall sort of breaks down Stringer goes in to try and get it uh, it's too subtle to see what's being said but he makes an attempt to get it mm. and then you go in in front of him and he quickly scuttles out of there so there might have been a few words while, uh, while that ball has been uh, fought for between yourself and your teammate and then you take it and you burrow over like I mean you're, you're, you are the one dri- literally driving that entire thing do what you're told is the simple thing as well. And for Stringer, I didn't want Stringer anywhere near that because um, Stringer as a nine was the best passing nine and he never thought of anything else apart once in his career against Biarritz. And he he didn't think to kick, he didn't think to run, he thought to pass. I didn't want him anywhere near it. That ball was never going to the backs. That was only going to stay with the... With the, with the big lads in, in, in on it. So no, that was all. That was just a go away. There was no strategy in that. Um, a, a more polite idea. It wasn't. I'm not overstating uh, uh, myself because mine is one part of it and it's only a small part of it. Um, for me, it was the captaincy of following what the captain said and um, and having the clarity to say, this is what we're going to do and we never deviated from it. Do you, um, like, you're so associated with Munster and your time there was so brief. Do you have any regrets about not spending more time at Munster? I don't really. I know that's kind of, it's hard. I, I spent a fair bit of time there from 92 to 95. Um, so I was there in the amateur times. Um, and obviously I played under 20 for Munster for, for a fair bit. I went to I went to Quinns because I, I, the IRFU wouldn't give me a contract. It was a very simple thing. I had two contract offers in the UK. I didn't have any in Ireland, um, uh, and I wanted to play professional rugby. And Quinns gave me the start. And when I came back for that one year, it was one of those perfect confluence uh, of events where there was no relegation that one year. There was a World Cup year. Quinns were trying to tidy up their finances. They'd heard a rumour that I was thinking of going back. They said, we can facilitate the rumour if you promise to come back the following year. And it was a straight, simple thing like that. So I had a contract. I still had a pre-existing contract with Quinns. Right. And I went back to a contract. I never broke that contract with Quinns. The Quinns contract stayed there. And so it wasn't uh, an opportunity to go back. I, I went back and I played two matches in prior to the World Cup in 2003. And um, uh, um, Alan Gaffney was coach at the time. And he did say when I retired, he said he was, he was, he said he was proud of me for retiring in a World Cup. Um, he said, but he thinks it should have just been from international rugby. He thought I might have come back and played for a bit, but I, my body was, was pretty much on the brink at that stage. So, no, I look. I it's funny. I I really I, like. I love my time with Monster, and that year was extraordinary. And I learned so much. We talked about Caban earlier on, but I learned so much in that year. Quinns had, as I described, eight or nine international captains, but the sense of team within Monster was far higher. Monster were a better team. They were a team of built up of players who played as a team. Quinns was still very much an individual club at that stage, and. But I learned an awful that year back. I learned an awful lot, and I think I learned a lot when I went over to Quinns in in the first in the first period, and then laterally as well. Um, and that's all you're kind of thinking you're doing. You're just you're playing as it is. So for me, is it regret? I regret not winning the final in 2000 because I'd like to have won that final. Um, 
But I have to say, I got the, I got a lot of joy, and I didn't really care that much of the other teams either. <laughs> didn't even care that much, you know, when you're going, you're playing for them. But after that, I think it, it reignited um, a joy I had for the province, and that was the first team I looked for after every result afterwards. So when I saw them winning, so losing in 2002 was very hard, but winning in 2006, 2008 was extraordinary. And I was, you know, I went to the 2008 game. And it was it was magnificent, you know. And um, like I was long retired at that stage, so yeah. No, I I don't know that I regret it, but um, I wish I'd won in two thousand. That's for certain. Mm. I should mention as well that the scoreline I said at the start thirty five thirty four. That was of course the away game against Saracens, and you had your battles with them with them that season. That was the away game in November. But we're talking about the the Thilman Park game, which was January eighth two thousand. Thirty one points to thirty. And as you say, Woody, like. That the players in that Saracens team, and even that kick at the end. So, uh, as you say, as it turned out, a one-point defeat would have been enough to top the pool, regardless of what Saracens did in Saracens did in their final game. But uh, I mean, I think Declan Kidney knew that on the sideline, but but Ronan McGarra certainly wasn't aware of that. No, and I think we're there was a great innocence to that moment in time too, as to you know everybody knows the outcome of every game before it happens at this stage, but we were kind of too busy just going to go and play it. I had a great chat with Francois Pinar lately. I can't remember whether Francois played that game. I think he did, but um, he said he doesn't have any good memories of coming over to Limerick. He, every time he came over, somebody treated him with a high level of disrespect in the field. So, um, which I think he wears that badge well too. Hundred percent, and uh, it's just one of those great. You look at the uh, that monster team, um, incredible. Uh, the names on that list, even the young lads like O'Garan, Stringer, Horgan, Wallace, all twenty-three years or younger. And then you have, as you say, the veterans like like Galia van Claw, uh, Axel Foley as well. I mean, it's just such a brilliant team. And and I think you were sixty-six to one outsiders. I read somewhere to to win the Heineken Cup that year. I know that there was the final disappointment, but there's that story of yourself. I think it was and John Langford. Um, at the start of that season suggesting Munster should win every game in the, in the season and, and I think there might have been a few giggles or uh, players that maybe weren't on the same wavelength of thinking as yourselves Yeah I think it was I, mean, I only kind of mentioned this I think because Raj said it in his book or, or, one, or one of those things but it was a, it was an unusual time it was um, it was also a slightly kind of uh, don't say you're better than anybody else kind of mm. attitude and it was one of those things that kind of needed to go um, like I would have always uh, I'd always talk back on that period of time it was funny because you want to play and you want to win every game uh, that wasn't necessarily the attitude it, it, yes you wanted to win but you didn't want to talk about it that needed to break definitely but I think when Langford came along um, like Langford had played a few times for for Australia Um but his attitude and attention to detail at training for a guy who was tall, he was sort of six six or so, um, very thin, very fit, um, very good in the lineout, very good tackler, but didn't have a lot of the other skills. Um, so he wasn't a, a very good ball carrier. He wasn't that shape. Um, he wasn't very fast, even though he's incredibly fit. But his attention to detail for his job and his role was just so far beyond anybody else, any of the rest of us. It was just so far beyond anything. That was a shock to an awful lot of players. So when he said anything at that stage, and this was a couple of weeks after training for the first time, they'd already seen that, wow, well, this guy's on a different level. 
And when he talked as well, it just became very different. Mm. And those leadership skills you, you picked up yourself when you later became captain as well leads us nicely into the, the third pick because it's um, it's Brian O'Driscoll and it's a f- reasonably famous game, I think. Ireland 27, France 25. This is the Six Nations in March of 2000. And of course, the 21-year-old bod uh, with a hat-trick of tries and, and planting himself in Irish rugby history and, and really launching himself into the arena of, of world renown, I guess, Keith. This was um, quite an incredible performance. It was an incredible performance. Um, the last time Ireland had beaten France was um, um, was 1972. It was a couple of days after I was born, I think. And um, so um, it was 28. It had been 28 years since we'd won there. Um, two years previously, um, the papers had been writing about the fact that this was the first time a team was going to be beaten by 100 points in the Five Nations when we were going to to, to France. We lost that game by two points. I think we lost the next game the year after in Dublin by a point. We'd been poor uh, against France for a long time. And uh, I remember that game very, very clearly that we, it was the fastest opening 20 minutes. Um, I can't remember the scores. I never remember those. I remember the emotions, actually. That's how I kind of think (laughs) of things. And maybe the level of tiredness and fatigue that was there. But after 20 minutes, I was bollocksed. Mm-hmm. And I was running up to a line out um, that had been kicked out by by France, and, and um, I was going to throw it in. So I was jogging up to it, and I was jogging up to it slowly. And I turned around, like they were a little bit in the lead, but not a, not a huge amount. And we'd never we'd never survived that level of play before that that pace that had always blown us away. And I remember standing up, picking up the ball. And my back was to everybody all the time. And I picked it up and I turned around to throw it into the lineup. And the only people that were there were Irish forwards. The French were all over the field, lying on the ground. Um, they were wrecked as well. And and I remember saying it and pulling the guys in at the time and just saying, um, lads, we, um, I think we have them. We have them here. I think we can, uh, they're doubting themselves, you know, and and but that seems fantastic, and we win the game, and um, we won the game because Brian Driscoll scored a hat trick of the most ludicrous standard of tries. Now there were good running lines by players, and you know he didn't do it on his own, but it was the the coming of age of a young guy. And I remember thinking on the field at the time, and I and I do remember it, it was a real time feeling that actually we can do it because we had him there. Mm. And and I often said this, if you took away the three tries from Draco that day, it was the best performance of any Irish rugby player ever anyway, notwithstanding the three tries. And he scores a hat-trick. And we win by two points. It isn't as if we we coasted to victory. It was horrible. It was a horrible day. It was uh, in terms of emotion, this this trying to get the monkey off your back, trying to have that, that element. It required the most extraordinary brilliance of a young player, and we still only won by two points. That that frightened me an awful lot. And the only upside for that is we backed it up the following year and we beat them the following year as well. There was something wonderful that we had broken it and then we backed it up. Uh, people tend to reflect on that at this remove as sort of the arrival of Brian O'Driscoll. He'd obviously played games before that. It was He played eight tests before it. Um, he had only scored one try over that time against America in the World Cup. Um, he'd been playing for Leinster under Matt Williams and it was just interesting to note your point there about if he hadn't scored the tries it still would have been an unbelievable um, performance was it 
was it a standout? Was had you guys within the group started to talk about him or think about him that this might be in him, or was this a surprise to you? No, I look. I remember the first time I saw him at a training session. Um, I've said this before, but um, he turned up. He's kind of spotty kid with the the thickest pair of glasses I've ever seen, <laughs> and I and I thought he was. Um, uh, Paddy O'Reilly would often bring young fellas in to help him. And I thought he was a young fella in to help Rala. I didn't know anything about him. Um, I'd been living in the in the UK. Um, um, the, like the first time I think I saw him was in the summer of 99, maybe. Um, and uh, I'd been in the UK and I, I just I hadn't heard anything about him. I didn't recognize anything until he trained. And then he trained. As I mentioned Langford beforehand. Langford's trained that way because of a lifetime of experience. Um, Drico trained that way because he was a kid with a different standard. And he he was extraordinary. I just can't get that image out of my head of him walking into the glasses and thinking he's helping out the uh, the kit man. That's like it sums up how young he must have looked and how fresh he must have looked coming into that team. Even that image, Keith, of the the French player sprawled out. It's almost like you're describing a Caravaggio painting of just complete despair in the French ranks. Well, I remember describing. Uh, I was lying on the ground again um, when Drico scored the hat trick, the third try, and. <laughs> I described it as the, the, the punch that Ali never threw. Um, <laughs> like it, it was almost, it, nobody could lay a hand on him. And it was, again, it was operating differently. There's people making a bit of an effort to tackle him, but they're not even in the same postcode. Mm. As you said, there were other good performances. Even what, what I was watching back the first try there last night and Malo, Malo Kelly has some beautiful skill lovely little skip pass involved in that and even yourself you drew in uh, Martel Masso who I think was your opposite number that day so that opening try was was brilliantly worked and even David Humphrey's performance as well he nails the penalty from from 40 metres out to, to I guess clinch the game he had a couple of dodgy uh, drop goal attempts after that but it's amazing how there were other brilliant performances just completely overshadowed by, by what Brian did that day yeah I think so and you know um, if ever there's a guy that lived up to the hype afterwards, it was Drico. And, you know, that was him launching on the world stage. And he then backed it up for another 10 or 12 years after it. Mm. Yeah, your, your penultimate pick, uh, Keith, is Zinzan Brook. His last game, Harlequin versus Bath, 2001. This is a slightly alternative one. Um, Zinni joined Quinns at the very end of his career. He was, he was past it. Um, he was uh, not as fit as he had been, a bit overweight. Um, he still was like a, like a kid. He trained first out practicing every kick he could possibly do, and he was last in for every every single training session. He was he just he loved he loved the game. He loved the sport. He loved the competition. So it marked the end of him. I don't know if this was his last game, but it was one of his last games. We were down in the wreck in Bath. A place that we'd never won. Um, uh, I don't think Quinns had won there for, I don't know if they'd ever won there, but they hadn't won there for 20 odd years anyway. Um, and with 25 minutes to go, Zinni was gone, right? He was just, he was knackered. There was, um, he'd no, no energy. Uh, he was walking around the field at this stage. And for some strange reason, 
um, Bath, we were on the 22 and Bath were on a huge, uh, we're defending on a huge drive. And so they did a, a switch pass to hit one of the centres to run a really, really good hard line. And Zinni hit him, probably be a high tackle now, but across the chest at full tilt, um, but not like a heavy hit falling into it, right? <laughs> and he absolutely caved the centre. And there was a rook went over it and they went across the field, they went over and back. And it, in that period of time, it took Zinni maybe 60 seconds to stand up again. And they did another switch and he'd only just got back onto his feet and they ran at him again. And he absolutely killed one of the flankers this time. And the third, third play, another four uh, phases later, they did the exact same thing and Zinni killed them again on the third time. And he had that moved off that one step. It had taken him the whole time to get up to do it. And when everybody piled in over, the ball was spilled down. We were getting ready to go into the scrum and I'm ready to hit the scrum. And I said, hang on, ref, just give me a second. I need to get my flanker because Zinni was playing wing forward that day. And Zinni crawled on his hands and knees five metres to get onto the side of the scrum. He couldn't, he couldn't get up after the third tackle. And I remember thinking, this was a guy who was known for the most flamboyant skill of all time. And uh, he was taken off immediately after that. I mean, he couldn't walk after it. And it was at the full end of his career. But he had huge highs in his career. And he would have been known for his tackling. But... He was known for his outrageous skill beforehand. But at that moment and in that time, he was the key component to, to take the wind out of bad sails. And we beat them for the first time in whatever it was, 20 years. And for me, I just think it was a joy that I got to play with someone like him. And I never saw him at his best. I did playing against him. Um, he was extraordinary. I played against him a few times for Ireland. He was just, he was incredible. But... Um, I do kind of cherish that fact that I got that chance to play with some of those greats. I think we, we, we picked your, or you picked your, your best 15 you played against, I think it was, and certainly Zinzan Brook was, was uh, given the nod in that one. And it's just, he strikes me as one of these people, Keith, like as you say, a, a real hard man on the pitch, but total gentleman off it. Gentlemen, mad GA fan, played Gaelic football for eight or ten years down in Southern Hemisphere. Was great friends with the McCallus, uh his next door neighbours down in, in Auckland. The Marist. Marist, yeah. And they brought him they brought him uh to, to play in the Gaelic football. They won a load of championship championships down there. Um uh just truly, truly extraordinary actually. Um if you look at any of the rugby that he played, some of the things that he did. Look at the highlight reel for him. It's pretty mm. amazing. Crazy. I, I won a New Zealand championship with Bernie McCahill at midfield, Keith. It's my, you uh, really? My claim to fame, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I won the New Zealand championship because Bernie McCahill was at midfield. <laughs> well, Bernie um, uh, Bernie was one of my coach coaches in Quinns. Um, he was Shawnee, Shawnee. His brother played with Munster and got one cap for, mm. for Ireland. Uh, Bernie was in that World Cup winning squad in 87 uh, as a very talented centre. And we ended up having quite a Kiwi um, uh, element into Quinns at one stage with John Gallagher, Kip Gallagher, um, famous for running fullback. Um, his actually father was from Limerick. Um, and uh, he was our director of rugby and Bernie was, was one of the coaches and Zinni was there at the same time. 
That's certainly one of the highlights of, of Adrian Barry's he's a class, sporting he's career. He's a class actor. Initiation ceremony after joining the club was to go up to the clubhouse after your first match. Uh, if you'd made your debut that day, you would take your top off, as would Bernie, and in front of everybody that was there on that day, which would be a fairly healthy Irish community, he would lead you in the hacker. And there was no uh, <laughs> there was no messing around. Like It wasn't like a bit Seriously? of a jokey thing. It was get this done and follow as I do and uh, and very much that the case on the pitch as well Jesus uh, the hacker was never jokey for those guys no. I, was, I got Sinny to do the hacker in Morns and the Weir um, uh, in Claren Bridge at one stage in the snug which is quite intimidating because <laughs> no matter where you were you couldn't be far far enough away from him yeah definitely intimidating for the people outside the snug who couldn't uh, see it they could just hear it um, your, your final pick uh, Keith uh, is Eric Miller and Anthony Foley's performances but it's your try against England in 2001 this is a, a famous moment yeah I just I like it as a moment in time and I like it for me but and that's fine but I, I like it for the simplicity of elements of it um, that's 2001 uh, foot and mouth game but it was We'd used that line out about three years before and what we'd started doing at that stage, we had about 250 line out moves and we, we tried to simplify it down and we might use 10 or 15 for any particular game so that you could chop and change them from one game to the next so that opposition wouldn't have known exactly what you were doing. We practiced it that morning under the, under the stand and we practiced it once in the warm up and, um, it's a bloody good try. And it was, we hadn't beaten England since 94. And I was on the bench the, the last time we'd beaten them beforehand. And um, we wanted to keep it simple. And we thought this was a good chance and a good opportunity. We had a game plan that was targeting guys, some of the guys that we toured with, with the Lions that summer. Um, their confidence was a little bit low. We wanted to make certain we could get it lower. We did whatever was possible. We said we'd do simple things for that. So simple for me was throwing to make Galway. Galway gets the second mention for this one. Hmm. Um, um, he passed it on to Anthony Foley. And uh, if I bypass Foley for a moment and talk about Eric Miller, Eric was standing too, too further back, I think. And Eric just put his hand in. He wasn't, it was, it would have been considered a very subtle obstruction. <laughs> um, but he just maneuvered himself into a position of where people had to go around him. And if you're going around somebody, you don't get there in time from a five meter uh, line out. Well, he held back Richard Hill, I think, as well. <laughs> he did. And holding back Richard Hill is never a bad thing because <laughs> Hilly, Hilly, was, Hilly was in that. Um, that best 15 as well, if I remember rightly. Mm. Um, Hilly was absolute class. Um, but it was Foley got the ball and it was the the way Foley passed the ball. It, it wasn't passed. It was left. It was just left in the air. Now, that's so difficult to do when you're under pressure. So there was just, there was no weight on the ball. The ball just happened to be, it was just there. And so you could run that way, that way, or that way. You could run any direction. You didn't have to deviate because the ball wasn't going anywhere. It was just kind of floating or resting in the air. It's a it's a perfect pass. Yeah, because I think no matter how many times you, as you say, you, you practiced it that morning or whatever, but like you don't break stride whatsoever. It's the deftness and the delicateness, the soft hands from from Axel. Like it literally, couldn't have been a more perfect pass. Well, if I had, if I slow down, I don't score. Yeah. That's the other thing. So if I have to deviate, I don't score. 
And um, so, no, it doesn't mean we don't score. We might rock it over and score then afterwards, but I don't score that directly. Um, it, the key to it is not having to adjust at all. And it's just that ball floating in space. It was magic. Do you remember the moments immediately after the try? Because obviously the crowd are going absolutely berserk. Commentary team are losing it as well. But it, it, can you take yourself back there at the speed of thought or is it just all a blur? Um, no, it's not. It, for me, it's it, there's uh, it's a joy. It's a, a joy of scoring, and it's I'm going to say it's not it's not selfish. It's not of, of me scoring, and I'm, and people might dispute that or not, but it isn't. It's your scoring, right? Mm. And uh, I can tell you there was an awful lot of uh, hurt in around that period of time because we hadn't we hadn't won. Um, we were trying to you know get our act together. It was very difficult. Um, uh, you just want to get back, and uh, the old uh, adage in, in in rugby of of you know the score isn't over until you've collected the ball from the kickoff and got back down the field again. You know, and it's all then about your concentration of the next thing. But I will tell you that the noise in Old Lansdowne Road, in particular, was just of such a level, such a cacophony of sound, of a high and a low. Um, there was a kind of bu- a, a, a pulsing um, energy to, um, to to that stadium. I mean, it was it was fantastic. I met a couple of guys who told me afterwards that they climbed in over the fence and dug up that part of the ground and started their garden on that area where we scored. I don't know no. whether it was true or not, but it was a good it was a good story. Probably uh, true at that time. Yeah. What? what di- so when you take that ball, as, that ball, as you say, when you're coming around the corner and it's hanging in the air, and Neil Back is lining himself up for you, uh, like he just he didn't stand a chance. He sort of almost because the force you were running at him, he almost had to had no option but to roll you over the line. And I think might have been Wilkinson was sort of standing there as well. How quickly in that coming around the corner, ball suspended in the air, did you think I'm in? You. I, <sighs> I never think I never thought it until you're over the line, and I used practice, uh, you know, carrying the ball at pace all the time. I would have always said it was a the hand-eye coordination. I I got that a bit from um, from hurling, definitely, and that's again the joy of a perfect pass, but also the idea to be able to catch it without having to slow down. That would have been a strength. Um. And I would have considered that the perfect point of contact, and I would have practiced it always, to, was to have with almost a stamp on their toe, so that I'm in that powerful forward position mm-hmm. as opposed to further back, and I can be knocked over. So my centre of gravity needs to be pretty much over my hip, um, on the point of contact, so that you can bounce off it or not. Um, but Neil Back was a foot behind where he needed to be and so after that he he couldn't stop me so then it was but that all happens in a in a blur yeah. mm. you know there's not a huge amount of thought in that process I think I'm right in saying as well it was a special day for you overall because you'd overtaken Ken Kennedy as Ireland's most capped hooker that day and I think Tom Kiernan the captaincy record went as well so a number of things for that, for that uh, reason that day was special well, I, for you I never, I never knew any of those um, I never thought about those at the time and people would bring them up but and so I may have known it at the time but I never I actually never thought anything like that I was interested when I, I bumped into Ken Kennedy 
um, later on that evening and he hit me a dig for passing out his records which was quite entertaining I couldn't hit him back he was a much older man but, um, <laughs> it wasn't that it didn't crash your mind <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> too hard you know so, um, so that was kind of entertaining after a fact but no you never really think of those things too much yeah you know, absolutely Really enjoyed that, Keith. So more, fan, more fans chat than 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 players mm. chat, and it's nice after the fact, but not when you're doing it at the time. Yeah, good to remember all these memories as well. It's a, a really special episode, and we'll we'll have to get you back on, Keith, for sure for your uh, for your non rugby picks as well. If you're up for it, brilliant. Anytime, lads. As always, great stuff, Keith. Thanks, thanks That is the latest episode of You Had to Be There. It's so unexpected. It's one of those you had to be there moments. You had to be there. It subsequently genuinely did change everything about my life. I had to be there. Yeah, it's 9.36am, it is Wednesday's O2BEM, the sports breakfast show from Off The Ball. On tomorrow's show, Jer will be back with myself, we're live with Sue Ronan. She's reacting to Vera Powell's Republic of Ireland World Cup squad, which will be named officially uh, around about 11am this morning, or maybe just before. Uh, the Ross Common manager, Davey Burke, will join us in the studio to discuss the, the season just gone, of course, the disappointment of uh, being knocked out by Cork last weekend. Our latest Irish rugby depth chart as well, this time it's Alison Miller's back three picks, and plenty more besides. Right now, we have Matt Slater of the Athletic on the increasing Saudi influence on football. Thanks a million, Adrian, for your time this morning. Have a wonderful Wednesday. OCB AM with Gillette Labs. Get the ultimate shave or your money back. Neon Night Edition, available now.